Oh, <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> Just, wait, does sushi count in that? I would think so, right? I mean, it's and not does it count if you're the wrong gender? <laughs> and what does bad sushi mean? Can we get a dream translator up in here to tell us what bad sushi means? You need to go Texas. Are there any dream translators in the audience? <clears throat> that would like an involuntary pre- pregnancy, you know. Yeah, but that would make oh, for no, that would make for an amazing clubhouse room, a dream translator room. Yeah. Yeah. It, we have a nozzle on stage. It, it'd be funnier if they went at it, like you know, with from the technical specifics, where it's like, man, this is like the, it touches the spiritual side, and it's, you know, bad pregnancy. It's like, no, 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 no. That's like you know, auto mechanics, you know, bickering like click and clack style, but for the dream dream interpretation, could be pretty fun. Sounds funny though, but I had a friend um who i dated it was kind of a weird awkward relationship uh but she was she had a gift for translating dreams i think if someone taught her and then um the handful of times that uh, i had her translate my dreams it was like in- profoundly insightful in a way that i was like that's really bizarre um and it had something to do with the... She would always ask me what color was the thing, and then how did I feel about that thing? And then, and then by the end of it, you realized what the symbology of it all meant. It was really wild. But you know, I've conscious done processing. before. I mean, yeah. but not by color, but just had very strong dreams about people that weren't necessarily close, close friends. And then I would see them the next day, and I would tell them, and then their faces would just drop, you know? But um, yeah, I can't turn it on and off, though. But sometimes it happens. It's happened. I believe in it. I found. Uh, I found uh, if, about eating bad fish and rotten fish. <laughs> I can't believe that these things are there. Did you? You have a source, a, a dream dictionary about bad fish? Apparently, apparently, it means you have. Uh, it's. It signifies a strange situation is happening in your life. Okay. Stench is related to family conflict, which causes a lot of disputes and jealousy. It is the meaning of your dreams, rotten fish. Let's just pull up a sofa. We can change today's format and do a little bit of psychoanalysis. Let's just go through everybody's dreams. (laughs) That's so called a situation. Yeah. So did Tyler? I just DM you the top interpretation of bad sushi dream. Well, go ahead and read it. Ah, so hold on, hold on. Let me read it. Sushi dream interpretation. So, okay, wait, wait, wait. Dream about about eating sushi. Eating delicious sushi in the dream indicates that you need to adopt a healthier... You need to adopt a healthier lifestyle. Okay. (laughs) This is about eating... Yeah, dream about eating sushi. Then dream about making sushi. Making sushi in the dream indicates that you need to address your spiritual side. Okay. Okay. Dream about buying sushi. Buying sushi in a dream at a restaurant foretells that you will find ways to deal with your raw emotions. Yeah. Raw emotions. Okay. <laughs> Same as my story. What a, hold on. There's still, there's still a lot. Did you did you dream about sushi uh, tuna or salmon or what? Yes, tuna. Subway okay, tuna specifically. Dream. Is there a specific translation dream. for this one? Hold on. Dream about <laughs> tuna it was not sushi, sashimi, you know. Yeah, having raw su- tuna sushi in the dream suggests that you have to settle for unattractive ideas and options. However, <laughs> these seemingly common ideas will be highly profitable and worthwhile. Must be the buy now, pay later, I think. 
or, maybe. or the iPhones. Tyler's like, oh man, I don't know which iPhone I want. Yeah, did anyone what dream about iPhones last night? Maybe it's yes, maybe it that's unfortunate. Ah, maybe it had something to do with iPhones because uh, it was kind of like you know Apple's like the Jiro of hardware manufacturers, and and the new iPhones weren't that great. Maybe that was. Bad Tyler, sushi. This one, Tyler. Dream about sushi chef. Seeing a sushi chef in dreams points to someone who will make the best out of raw emotions and inputs. They will see and combine simple things into amazing combinations. Oh, that's what you do in tech news around the world. <laughs> but ah, wait, 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 I, I think we figure. I think I think it has something to do with uh, my internal processing about whether or not I'm going to buy the, the iPhone 13, and that it just wasn't. That great. Okay, well, I like that, Dan. I like that. We need that. dream interpretation for which way. Maybe it's all. Maybe it's all the Tyler, new colors. Tyler, one more. Dream about rotten sushi. Dreaming about <laughs> rotten fish growing mold is a warning that your relationship with others will come to an end. Uh oh. Some rumors or information which will negatively impact its foundation. I don't think this is relevant. I okay. think it must be the one before. Yeah. So someone in, in Iceland, you I think it's shark, the iPhone. You know? I think I, yeah. Like, yeah, I think it's iPhone related. So, Pragya uh, Dahal is the as a newbie on stage today. So, uh, uh, welcome. welcome and perhaps oh, Pragya, so are you a dream <laughs> translator? <laughs> so just funny enough, I was just finishing a book called Why We See. She's a bookworm. That is precisely the reason why I'm on stage. And thank you so much for inviting me. Welcome. Yeah. Well, I had all these questions, and um, obviously one book will not help you decode all these answers, but I think it's a good start. I've certainly found my answers to these questions from hmm. this book. I'm not endorsing it in any okay. way. Okay, that's right. You can endorse yeah, it. No, it's, no, no. It's, <laughs> is Nozil new as well? Nozil? The big N. Oh, 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 sorry. No, we have another gentleman on stage called Nozil. Is, is he new? Hey. Uh, no, Nazil. Nazil's old school. He and he defiantly school? keeps his very Windows, uh, Windows ninety five, uh, you know, style icon. <laughs> oh, Nazil's yeah, so yeah. old school. He's new again. Yeah. Oh, he's a Microsoft consultant. Okay. Yeah. So okay. the Apple, the big headline, perhaps no surprise, is Apple announces iPhone thirteen and thirteen mini. With similar design to iPhone 12, smaller notch, an A5, A15 chip, diagonal dual camera system, larger battery, and five new colors. And maybe so it's the colors that, that brought about the sushi. You lift and swing, yeah. You're going to be able to throw your legs back someday in the future. So, and then they also released a 13 Pro and 13 Pro Max. And new iPhones. I think it's a younger we folks. Like expecting satellite and all kinds of things and yeah. you know kind of fizzled out yeah the, uh, the, the biggest expect- announcement is the color i mean it's oh boy <laughs> so the yeah, but i miss i miss real innovation i miss really the innovation part it's we were talking satellites biometrics we were talking like you know crazy things with like you know like you know like like ai analysis stuff and we got new colors yeah it's just colorful ways of taking your money <laughs> <laughs> The yeah. Apple A15 a system on a chip with two different Apple's release iOS 15. Oh, so the the iOS 15 date is released. So it's September 20th. So five days from now, which is what Monday. So Monday we all get the new operating system. 
iOS 15. How long can we opt out? And Apple releases new MagSafe wallet with Find My Network. Apple, there's just a ton of Apple-related headlines of all types. So I'll I'll spare reading through all of them, but none none of them are particularly earth-shaking, I should say. So the next trillion app- dollar market cap company, folks. Yeah, the the question is, will Apple get to three? Yeah, three trillion. They're at two point five trillion. And what will it take to get them to three trillion? Um, and when is the MacBook Pro event? Jesus, oh, that's what I want to see the the M one X MacBook Pros. That's what it is. We we were really hoping to see something like that because that's really, I think, in my opinion, the exciting one, right? Like that that's going to have like. 16 32 cores or something like that and just be a beast and i'm a little you know we have a little concerned apple might be kicking into an intel pace of innovation here what happens is they say oh we're to tick tock cycles we'll do innovation this year and then we'll skip essentially the next year and then we'll you know just do every other year for that it's not a good pace to be in so it's but, like the old days when you have the number and then the S, you know, the five S yeah, yeah, and exactly. six. Yeah, this yeah. this would have been an S year anyway because they didn't upgrade the hardware really. But the the increment, I mean, besides that, these incremental annual updates, it's hard to maintain the some same percentage of level of growth once you get to this scale. So it's just naturally, you know, becomes incremental, and we're at that incremental point where you know there's no more low-hanging right precisely tyler i want to i wanted like a timeline of every time that people said that it's like this is the year that this is finally the event they announced the new glasses because that we've been having this for what four years now and it's been very entertaining watching how confident people are (laughs) about this is the year yeah but they subtly reviewed the apple shoes say what you are saying that they are wearing the same shoes, right? So Tim, kind of like- yeah, well, that was interesting. Tim Cook and and uh, Jaws were wearing the same shoes. I don't know what. There's got to be some hidden symbolism here. Can you look up the dream? What does the dream book say about that, Cheryl? So, <laughs> Nin- Nintendo adds Bluetooth audio support to the Nintendo Switch, which That's limits nice. the device to two wireless controllers when in use and does not support microphones. The SEC charges App Annie with securities fraud. That's interesting. Accusing it, had it of, to be pretty bad for them to intervene on this. Yeah. Accusing it of engaging in deceptive practices and misrepresenting its data. App Annie will pay a $10 million settlement. The SEC and exchange, the Securities and Exchange Commission announced Tuesday that it's charging App Annie, the mobile app data provider, uh, with a $10 million uh settlement they or they'll pay a 10 million dollar settlement and for those who don't know app annie is uh is where app developers go to track their you know how downloads are going with apps uh, you know you can see how well apps are doing and journalists often use it to get a sense for how uh, a company's doing and you know it's an interesting data point but it says here in the article uh, securities fraud, accusing the company of engaging in deceptive practices and misrepresenting the origins of its data. App Andy will pay a $10 million suit. According to the SEC, the company, which sells estimates of app downloads, usage and revenue, that's the other part too, is it tells you how much money apps have made, which 
if you know the number of downloads and you know how much they're charging per download, well, then you have a sense for the revenue. So, um, which they sell estimates of app downloads, usage, and revenue assured app businesses that the performance data they shared with App Annie would only be used in an anonymized way and run through an algorithm to generate performance estimates. But the SEC accuses App Annie and its former CEO and chairman of reneging on that promise and using actual performance data to tweak its estimate models between 2014 and 2018. Then the SEC alleges the company sold that confidential data to trading firms. Oh, that's why the SEC is involved. That's kind of insider trading-ish. Wow. And misled those customers into thinking that the data was compliant with federal securities laws, which obviously it wouldn't be. So App Annie, to participate in it, you as an app developer have to give them access to your downloads, your data. So they do know how many apps, uh, how many times your app has been downloaded and how much revenue you've made and blah, 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 blah. And then some clever, greedy, greedy fuckers on Wall Street said, hey, App Annie, uh, listen, how does a few million dollars sound? We would love some of that sweet, sweet, juicy, juicy data that you've got over there in App Annie land. You happen to know about a startup, you know, that uh, recently IPO'd. And we would love to know how many times that thing's been downloaded. Maybe you could give us a little glimpsey glimpse into the, you know, uh, data there and the app Annie's telling the developers oh we we never share your data uh we obfuscate it we anonymize it and it turns out they weren't basically it seems according to this the wall street traders um had access to data it says here app Annie and schmidt lied to companies about how their confidential data was being used and then not only sold the manipulated estimates to their tr- to trading firm customers, but also encourage them to trade on those estimates. Oh, shit. Often touting how closely they correlated with the company's true performance in stock prices. Because if you can see day by day, maybe even hour by hour, uh, a company's app download, because many apps, for example, are their revenue is their app downloads. Not all, but many apps their revenue is purely exclusively how many times their app was downloaded and people paid for it. Make sense? So, if, uh, and so it, using using App Annie, you could know just as well as the CEO knows uh, and be able to calculate and extrapolate and uh, how value uh, precisely how much revenue a company has made, and if you know precisely how much revenue a company's making before it reports, you know, to the market on the quarterly earnings reports, you could trade that, uh, you know, and make incredible. That's incredibly valuable data. Yes, Chris. So, so the question is, is like, how was this represented? How did SEC like get involved? Was the complaint on that? Because I'm just imagining it's like, imagine the ultimate sales sheet where they say, "Hey, look, uh, you know, it, it, it buy ahead of the market, essentially trade on data. No one has access to yours for only like you know ten thousand dollars a thing." Like, was there like a like a one pager? Was there like a sales sheet? Was it like someone they had as a biz dev person? Like, because I mean, how much did they do self incrimination on this one? Because when you start basically saying you can trade on this data and you make money with it, that's going to raise some eyebrows. 
in certain circles. Like this sounds like something you want to especially egregious to get SEC involved because I mean Tech has all sorts of scandal stuff that you could do on things, but this one was like, did they just were they just extra blunt about it? What come caught? It doesn't say how it, how it, how this scheme unraveled because this is so lucrative for everybody involved. Yeah, how does it? Maybe the apps themselves started realizing. Oh, interesting how particular Wall Street companies are betting or sh- perhaps more likely shorting our company, you know, uh, in a way that makes us think that they, they happen to know our data. You see what I'm saying? Do you get, did they give out tips for when you, when you report things or whatever, like if one of the Wall Street traders did on their side with things, like, you know, one of those interns. Like the FBI them. does. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not aware that the SEC does do that. They might. All right. I just, I'm just, I'm just kind of trying to look into the future. Yeah, whistle, here whistle like blowing, crystal yeah. ball, or like, what, what is SEC going to get involved in more of these types of things? Because essentially, regulation isn't kicking in on other sectors, or it's like, it's like, all right, we'll just pick on the fraud side. I mean, because like, there is so much theft happening on like the, uh, uh, the there's the uh, the the internet is how much the internet is fake thing from like a few years back from like a, a from New York Post, and they're showing how the advertising metrics that they sell to, to marketers with things are just outright just fabricated in many cases. Um, and you know, you could, you could seriously go after groups essentially just for outright fraud there, but it's, I've seen almost no action on that regards, at least publicly on things. So it, it's interesting that, that, that when they go after antitrust, they go for all these different angles rather than the more obvious one of fraud that actually affects the, the core bottom line. Con- conduct alleged covers period right before the GDPR went into effect. This is big news. App Any settling with SEC for ten million for security fraud. Uh, app Any promised app developers uh, and HF clients app data was anonymized when put into App Any's models. It wasn't. Then App Any encouraged clients to trade on the model's exploitations. Tech then it's not. Somebody says on Twitter: Is there a more useless promise in tech than it's anonymized? Uh, when someone says that something's going wrong when 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 we only used aggregate it actually means okay so the next one's from bloomberg last week's court ruling leaves the door open for apple to still attempt to collect 30 percent commission from app developers who use their own payment methods and and that's we talked about this when we were here right before the iphone event you know 12 hours ago um and that's a concerning new r- r- realization that Apple might still try and get 30%. I, we'll see. They need that to feel their innovation. <laughs> Apple oh, uh, gets yeah. get another color out next time. There are all those billions of dollars collected for this thing. And the next one up is Microsoft fixes over 80 vulnerabilities, including 20 Chromium security bugs. And a critical zero-day vulnerability in MSHTML. The Microsoft guy left. Oh, no. Ah. Well, maybe he went back to go fix the bugs. But yeah, um, yeah he, like, That's what I was getting at, is that he just found out about the bug. He, he had ju- to go he just, like, oh, crap. <laughs> another vulnerability. Another day, another Microsoft. Well, the, in this case, it's 80 vulnerabilities. So it's... Yeah, uh, they fixed a few in some other groups kind of thing. It's, 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 it's spread it nice and even with the bugs. And here I was. Here I was feeling like uh, Microsoft was super secure. So it's this is a real heartbreak. Hey, it's good enough for the government work. It's good enough for your, your personal security. <laughs> so the next one's from Forbes. It says collaborative graphic design app Canva, which is sort of um, Photoshop in a browser, basically. 
and you go to canva.com and you play around with the images and you move things around and you're like, holy shit, this is better than Photoshop. Like for the vast majority of work that people do online, it's truly fantastic. And it's layer of graphic design careers. Yeah. And um, you, you've, you will say to yourself, well, I don't need Photoshop anymore. Like this is. Well, I don't need to hire a graphic designer. I can just click a few buttons. That too. It, it makes you feel, you know, the same way that Instagram makes people feel like they actually know how to do photography. Canva makes you kind of get, gives you the feeling that you actually have some kind of graphic design sense. And Canva, here's the important part is, I mean, in my mind, why didn't Photoshop push more towards a browser version of Photoshop that's a, a more like Canva? Like So because Canva now has raised $200 million at a $40 billion valuation. Yeah, I was going to say Good 240 40 <laughs> Seriously? Yes. Like what, a 2%? Yeah. Is capital that desperate these days? Its founders pledged to give away 30% of Canva to charitable causes. Wow. Canva is now one of the world's most valuable startups after raising $200 million and a new funding at a $40 billion valuation. Sweet Jesus. And, and, to, and Adobe's thinking, why the shit didn't we do that? And PowerPoint. <laughs> it's, I love the way it replaces that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I use Apple Keynote to uh, as as a version of Photoshop as well. I, like he- I, 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 I have a funny thing on the on the PowerPoint thing. So, so you know, how you saw a while back that Microsoft got like a twenty two billion dollars for the Hololens. I, I, have, I have a comical thing where I was doing the tech analysis on why the military actually spent all that money on it. I would say that the the reason why is they actually bragged in internal things about. Uh, how it's compatible with all their existing content. So I'm like, okay, you're going to use an advanced holographic interfaces to display military PowerPoint slides in a way that you can do eye checking. So you know what the soldiers are actually looking at your PowerPoint slides as an agent general. So de facto, that would mean that, you know, PowerPoint has another 22 billion put into it as its valuation. So, I mean, if you want to make something, make a lot of money in tech, apparently just, you know, come up with a pretty way of drawing little pre pictures on little slide decks. Apparently that's the future. Do uh, do Canva have uh, a mobile application? I imagine they must have. Like Canva XR thing. Imagine if they're a forty billion valuation company. I I would assume they have an an iPhone. Yeah, that's that's where I was going with that, Chris. I'm wondering if they've got some sort of integration that investors know about that they're working on, maybe within the the app ecosystem that that will integrate with everything existing. Yeah, they'll integrate with Facebook, integrate with Instagram. Raising two hundred million at a forty billion valuation. That's, Are they just like giving amazing. money away at that point? I mean, like the pressure on those guys internally is like, what happens if they miss a target? Do they, does the entire equity just like go somewhere else? Is it some like boardroom politics? I mean, that's just insane. Can you imagine the Shark Tank uh, shark's face? You're like, I'm coming in and I'm asking for $200 million for 2% of my company. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm turning down my volume a little bit because Carl let me know. I seem a little bit louder than pre- historically, so... Hopefully this is back where it used to be. So uh, the next one's from Reuters that Uber's CTO named Sukumar Rathnam uh, has resigned after a year in the position amid tensions with Uber chief product officer Sundeep Jain. So it's, um, and then you, the CEO is uh, uh, Dara. So you've got a whole lot of... Uh, you know, Middle Eastern Asian folks running running the show over Duber. Where um, did all the money come from? It's yeah. mysterious. 
Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you don't necessarily think of Uber as being, you know, um, you know, they they're kind of keep low profiles over there. But the they took some SoftBank money. If you took SoftBank money, your VPs started to look really, really certain certain ethnicities very real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Uber chief technology officer is stepping down as the company's head of engineering. Uh, Business Insider reported on Tuesday, citing people familiar with the matter. And I'm, I'm, they just lost a lawsuit. Well, this case in the Netherlands that basically the Netherlands decided that uh, Uber drivers are employees, and now this uh, CTO steps down. Uber's going through a bit of a rough patch. It's unclear I'm how sure it's Uber... nothing the lawyers can't handle. Um, well, and it's nothing bigger than what they've gone they've gone through other rough patches previously. Um, but interesting to see how it shakes out. I th- I think they need to get into the autonomous game in a because if they if they get. Well, they got out of it, though. That, they had a whole self-driving car division they sold know, off, essentially, that, that's, to, that, to Aura with things. Since that moment, I've been a little confused, because that's the long-term play. That you yeah, had. that was the whole reason they were going to be able to escape the labor stuff with things. Correct. And it's like, oopsies. But, but right. by the way, it, it, internally with things, it, the viz.gl, um, all the uh, all the engineers that were on that division, they did some amazing internal work for like the, the, the visualization libraries and the pathing and such. One of the things that actually came from that was actually kind of a, a good thing was out on their way out the door, they open sourced their entire internal stack for the the data visualization for the ride mapping and stuff. So it's um, Google, I think, is uh, I think doing it to the Linux Foundation. Google's sponsoring it now. But there's some amazing libraries for visualization if people want to play, play with that. It's, it's very, well, very well coded. Uh, that was one of the, the side effects of them spinning off their, their uh, autonomous division there. The next one is from Gizmodo that uh, Anonymous... Uh, claims to have stolen huge Trump. Anonymous is a, a FBI front organization at this point. It, it's it's a bunch of um, anonymous figures working collaboratively to do kind of uh, use hacking as a means of justice for, from their perspective. Just go watch Mr. Robot. It's more or less that. Yeah. So, but anyway, so when I say anonymous claims to have stolen, I mean anonymous is an organization, uh, although uh, an intentionally um, anonymous organization who calls themselves anonymous. So, anonymous claims to have stolen huge trove of data from Epic, a right the right wing's favorite web host, the controversial domain registrar Epic, uh, which has been known to host Nazis and other unfortunate unfortunate groups. Apparently, just had all of its data stolen. Members of hacktivist collective Anonymous claim to have hacked web registration company Epic, allegedly stealing a decade's worth of data, including reams of information about its clients and and their domains. So this could then lead to further hacks uh, on those um, on those folks. Charles is here. Okay, is this? Let's get get your hand up in the, in the air there, Charles. Me, me, uh, Epic is a controversial, having been known to host a variety of right wing clients, including ones, uh, hold on, including ones that previous web hosting providers like GoDaddy have dropped for various reasons. Its users have included conservative social media networks, Parler and Gab, as well as conspiracy theory laden YouTube wannabes uh, and former president. Trump fan site, The Donald, the company recently hosted 
blah, 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 blah. So I think you get the idea here. The data set is all that's needed to trace actual ownership and management of the fascist side of the internet. And that's eluded researchers, activists, and well, just about everybody. So that's why I'm saying the bigger news here is not that they hacked the registrars, that they now have access to a lot of data that they will is now very valuable for them to. So I, I, I guess Epic is the is revealing this because Anonymous would not have revealed this. They would have used that data. They don't want to. They don't want to blow the whistle and let their future victims know um, that they now have access to their data. One more data point here yeah. on, on underlying web infrastructure things, DNS records and such. Um, the way the arch- internet is architected is supposedly it was built in a way where you could basically access indirect point to point from anywhere. But because essentially so many of those layers have been abstracted. In practice, you have to get permission from a small number of gatekeepers. One of the factors there, Cloudflare era, I think during the time frame of like, you know, who's going to host the uh, Daily Stormer and stuff. Cloudflare essentially, uh, while normally they basically are like, we stay out of essentially like who's hosting what type of kind of factor. Uh, CEO intervened there and actually uh, uh, kicked essentially them off. And one of the factors, as he said, I shouldn't have this power. He actually posted some op-eds in the New York Times and says, there's actually a small number of gatekeepers that can do this on the internet. We should seriously consider the political implications of this long term. Um, so that was one factor. And so groups like Epic kind of fill in kind of that uh, missing infrastructure components. But there's going to be others. And yeah, you're going to see more of this in the future. Does somebody have a headline to jump into? I got a... Does Charles want to comment on that one? Yeah, I got I'll be back in three minutes if somebody has a separate. I've got a headline. Go ahead for this. I'll comment on it. I mean, I mean, I um, I don't think people should commit crimes against people on the internet, right? So, like, hacking people is a crime. Um, now the interesting question is, is this a crime that the U.S. government's going to look the other way on because it wants to also take these things off the air? And that I don't know, but I do think it's interesting. Let's see. I got a headline here from uh, this is from Intuit. Actually, they just purchased um, Mailchimp. Uh, Mailchimp. Yeah, um, and you probably already covered this one with things, but of interest for this one is that uh, they basically spent twelve billion dollars about expanding their small business focus. Um, and by the way, these are from the makers of TurboTax. You know, the ones that lobby to make sure that essentially you have to basically file your taxes by hand. Uh, They've got $12 billion to spend on essentially telling you about it in the email as well. So uh, more fun things in the future. Let's see. Yeah, we uh, were trying to figure out yesterday on that, Chris, like what the motivation is behind that. Because MailChimp has is, is kind of like fallen behind um, both in feature set and pricing plan wise. A lot of other really great alternatives. And the only thing we could really think of was the, the like the historical data, basically, you know, the, the 11, yep. 12 million customers, the, the four to five billion uh, sort of um, people they can reach. Um, who are the, the the target to the mailing campaigns? But like, is that worth the money that? Yeah, it, yeah. So it's not just it's the customer really list; it's the customers that pay money. That's that's the thing. Is, is some of the, the, the one of the reasons the legacy groups essentially have so much more with this is because you can trade on leverage for this when you're basically not trade on leverage with things where you're doing like you know, investments and, and stock market stuff. But you can also you can do some really fun financial tricks when you say, hey, look, this company has basically had steady revenues for 10 years and it's a tech company. And now when we juice it together with our other company, we can basically say the valuation is going to be worth X amount more. Now, it, it's kind of a fantasy 
this is a sort of magic math that allows ya- like Yahoo to constantly get traded around. Uh, there was like the oath type kinds of stuff back in the day. Um, it's not because it actually works, but on paper it, it looks fantastic. And a lot of mergers and acquisitions people, um, they all get like percentages of these things when the dollar amounts get obscene. And it, this, if you have a long running uh, if you have a long-running company, you can plug that into the spreadsheets where you would normally put something like, you know, civil infrastructure or real estate deal. You put in a tech valuation number in there, and it, it gets very magical very quickly. I don't know. I mean, I mean, Intuit. You know, they want to have a relationship with the next big test companies, right? And so it it's probably a pretty good deal. I mean, you know, Intuit's what valued at like 150 billion somewhere around there. And here's just twelve billion to basically have access to all the data and the relationship with all the, the the you know the new startups, and it's something that's not venture backed, right? It's a it's a bootstrap company. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, I actually think it's kind of a good deal. Um, and they probably they probably made. I mean, it seems like the right decision to make at the time. And if you're into it, I mean, you can't really afford like a Salesforce or others like buying this company, right? Um, so that's sort of the thinking on it, because otherwise you're in a sort of like you're in a bind. I mean, how much well, more can they grow? I mean, there's only so many people that can file their taxes by force. Of, by into it, it's been trying to expand into the home mortgage space, and they're facing all this increased pressure by the decentralized companies, the you know new innovators in the space. And when you buy a company like Mailchimp, you know you can blend in a bunch of those users into your gap accounting and say you 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 added 45,000 users when in reality you know net users Ooh. out of that group might be much smaller cuz you already have those users that's a very expensive sleight of hand if that's the case so next headline or are we in the middle of something no go for it go okay. for it we were just talking about turbotax yeah, we're know this is a favorite, everyone's favorite program for you. so the next one is that Solana has been suffering a network outage for around eight hours, which engineers say is caused by network exhaustion. Validators can restart if necessary. Solana, a rival blockchain network to Ethereum and one whose native cryptocurrency has surged in value recently, uh, apparently down due to be a victim of its own success lately. Are they telling people to turn it off and turn it back on again? Yeah. So the next one is an investigation into the Minneapolis school district's use of gaggle during the pandemic shows how moderators subject students to relentless digital surveillance. A week after the pandemic forced Minneapolis students to attend classes online, the city school district's top security chief, uh, pause, 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 um, got an urgent email, its subject line in all caps, alerting him to potential trouble. Just 12 seconds later, he got a second ping, and two minutes after that, a third. In each instance, the email warning Jason Matlock of questionable content pointed to a single culprit. Kids were watching cartoon porn. Over the next six months, uh, Matlock got nearly 1,300 similar emails from Gaggle, a surveillance company that monitors students' school-issued Google and Microsoft accounts through artificial intelligence and a team of content moderators. Gaggle tracks every online behaviors. Oh, Google tracks the online behaviors of millions of students across the U.S. every day. The sheer volume of reports was overwhelming at first. Matlock acknowledged, and many incidents were utterly harmless. About 100 were related to animated porn, 
And on one occasion, a member of Gaggle's remote surveillance team flagged a fictional story that referenced underwear. Hundreds of others, however, suggest imminent danger. In emails and chat messages, students discussed violent impulses, eating disorders, abuse at home, bouts of depression, and as one student put it, ending my life at a moment of heightened social isolation and elevated concern over students' mental health, references to self-harm stood out, accounting for nearly a third of incident reports over a six-month period. In a document titled My Education Autobiography, students at Roosevelt High School on the south side of Minneapolis discussed bullying, drug overdoses, and suicide. Kill Me, one student wrote in a document titled Goodbye. Nearly a year after the 74 submitted public records request to understand the Minneapolis district's use of Gaggle, during the pandemic, a trove of documents offer an unprecedented look into how one school system deploys a controversial security tool that grew rapidly during COVID-19 but carries significant civil rights and privacy implications. The data gleaned from those 1,300 incident reports in the first six months of the crisis highlighted how Gaggle's team of content moderators subject students to relentless digital surveillance long after classes end for the day, including on weekends, holidays, late at night, and over the summer. In fact, over about a quarter of incidents were reported to district officials on school days between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., bringing into sharp relief how the service extends school's authority far beyond the traditional powers to regulate student speech and behavior, including at home. Now, as COVID-era restrictions subside and Minneapolis students return to in-person learning this fall, a tool that was pitched as a remote learning necessity isn't going away anytime soon. Minneapolis officials reacted swiftly when the pandemic engulfed the nation and forced students to learn from the confines of their bedrooms, paying more than $355,000, including nearly 64000 in federal emergency re- relief money to partner with Gaggle until 2023. By the way, that's not that expensive for a that's tool actually like that. a lot, That's actually pretty cheap. Right. Uh, and this journalist doesn't, obviously is not, has never had a startup. And that's has, for all of Minneapolis? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I was making more than that from one client, you know, on my little tiny startup. So it's like... Who's uh, the poor guy that has to watch cartoon porn every day and do customer service on that one? Yeah. But I, I love how this journalist is like, they made $355,000 from the Minneapolis the School District. like, I'm making thirty grand like, for my clickbait article. So I, it's like... I would have charged it. four times that. But, so the... Yeah. So I, again, it's just... People doing Which journalism. American social credit and be done with it. I mean, it's yeah. like well, we're we're building a surveillance utopia. We get it. Faced with a public health emergency, the district circumvented normal procurement rules, a reality that prevented concerned parents from raising objections until after it was too late. Um, I, I, I'm I'm a little confused. Is is gaggle? Are you making gaggle out to be a good thing or a bad thing here? Because you're pointing out what you know, a whole lot of incredibly uh, important revelations about students and their psychology that could be incredibly valuable. And yet you're concerned that this they were paid money and that uh, they're being surveilled after hours. I get all that. Um, anyway, the with each alert. So the, the article goes on and on. Um, needles in haystacks. Wow, very long article. Kids We're... don't have rights. We 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 news at eleven. Yes. <laughs> um, where gaggle tracks students' online behavior. Oh, and so it's using 
In Minneapolis, a majority of gaggle incident reports over the six periods identified key. So it, they law they they can monitor everything going on in your Google account. So, for example, when you have a, it's almost oh, no, like that's more interesting. It's almost like an extension for, um, you know, when you add in an app into your Google ecosystem, it says it would like access to your calendar and your email and your Hangouts and your Google Drive. That's what this app does. It gets access to everything in your Google account, and then it monitors everything. And it turns out oh. that a lot of the student beha- online behaviors come from a mix of Google Drive and Google Hangouts and email. Tyler, oh, yes. there's actually a much more interesting thing, uh, uh, the, uh, the meta story here. So one of the reasons why Apple was able to take over to the, the level that it was is established a very strong foothold in the media sector with things with content creators. Part of that was because they made sure that every single classroom had a media center with donated Apple equipment so that all the kids grew up saying, oh, you can, you want to have fun? You, you want to make media content? Well, look, use the Apple computers in the computer lab. So that was a big thing. It's like investing in the future so you can have dominance like 10, 20 years later. Um, Jobs was brilliant for having a, a vision for that far into the future. Now, Google uh, got a little jealous of some of that. So they've actually been doing this for like, what, 10, 12 years? They're actually going to have some of the first kids graduating from this where they said, let's flood the market with Chromebooks, cheap little Chromebooks, and it basically make it the, the dominant thing in all of education. And they did. Um, it, it's, 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 it's basically when you basically are in a classroom now, you have a Google account for every single kid. And to the point where every single application has, whether or not essentially you're able to move data from program to program, Google has become an arbiter of that. Now, the way that they basically uh, said to the administrators, they said, no, 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 it's okay. You control the student's data with things. Uh, And one day when they turn 18, they'll be able to click a magical button. It'll convert into a normal account with a thing. Then Google will basically have every bit of data since kindergarten on the kids. Um, but this is kind of a meta, like kind of a preview of the sorts of data sets that will be available uh, when they click that magic button in the future and they turn 18. But it looks like they're getting a little greedy on the first side with things as saying, well, if you've got third parties, you can actually kind of have an intervention in between now and then. So that's a one way around COPA stuff. It's going to get crazy. So the article, hold on one second here. It says the to, to Matlock, who's the school director, you know, um, on this digital stuff, uh, gaggle is a lifesaver. Literally, when the tool gaggle flagged a Minneapolis student suicide note in the middle of the night, Matlock said he rushed to intervene. In a late night phone call, the security chief said he warned the unnamed parents who knew their child was struggling but didn't fully recognize how bad things had become because of gaggle. School officials were able to get the student help to Matlock. The possibility that he saved a student's life offers a feeling he can't even measure in words. If I if it saved one kid, if it supported one caregiver, if it supported one family, I'll take it. He said that's the bottom line. So I mean, there's a school to prison pipeline as well with things. So I mean, that's that school district. There's another one so, that you know could go the other way. So I mean, what I, what I would also add is that Roosevelt High School is one of the closest high schools to the George Floyd murder, mm-hmm. and I also know that carjackings um, in in and around Minneapolis, St. Paul, they rose exponentially. And I don't know if it was across the U.S., but I know for a fact in talking with friends and former neighbors in Minneapolis that it was a major, major issue about a year, year and a half ago. So I would imagine that the school district officials are thinking, okay, our kids are in dire um, need. You know, they're experiencing collective trauma and all 
you know, all other types of stressors um, kind of related to what's happening in the city and compounded in many cases with what's happening in their own neighborhoods and homes. So I imagine that that's why someone on the school district or someone within the district on the school board thought, well, it might be good to know what's really going on inside of their lives. That, I mean, that would be my take on on why they may have chosen to partner with Gaggle and, you know, do what would seem to be an overreach in terms of, you know, um, you know, kind of um, peeking into the students' lives. And, you know, as we talked about in the last segment, that's also a high school where, you know, most of the kids, they don't have the benefit of having to, you know, um, parents who are, you know, who put the, who are able to put the children at the center of their lives, you know, I mean, there are a lot of compound issues that, you know, kind of play out in that community. So. I mean, the same logic can work for essentially them at the high school level, but can also work in the college level with things for university and Hey, we might as well have the mayor for a city essentially have the same level of data access. I mean, it, I, the thing is what, what you train kids for as that's except as normal, uh, you know, with the rights they're given or essentially things that essentially or that they have that they're ignored in one way or respect or another, this is what becomes the dominant pattern for the rest of their life. So if you want to basically normalize surveillance, you start young. If you want to normalize essentially some that, you know, more independence, you start young. If you want more collectivism, you start young. So, I mean, I think it would be really, really interesting if we had a more formal definition of the kind of society that we want and then we basically train kids for it now because right now as it is it's, it's available for the highest bidder it feels like because so little investment is made in this space the fact that pearson's the largest company in the edtech sector and they're less than a three billion dollar company is kind of sad considering essentially that that's supposedly our entire future that there's a groups that essentially are willing to drive you know 10 20 30x multiples like we saw for a freaking graphic design company for canva or whatever you would think that essentially having the collective like curricula for all of the kids in the future would be worth more on that side. But uh, that's a longer argument for things. But this is kids future should be more expensive than the cheapness we put on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and just one one little, you know, punctuation to to that is that, you know, the neighborhood in which Roosevelt uh, High School is located is kind of the poster for a neighborhood that is over over policed and underprotected, and so these kids and their families they're already being surveilled upon so i, I don't know that it's actually much of an actually from what's actually happening yeah lakeisha they actually banned facial recognition in minneapolis which co- coincided with one of the larger uh crime waves there and according to the bureau of labor or excuse me, bureau of justice statistics um minneapolis is actually quite under policed now in the last few years um, and that's that's in large measure because of things like bail reform that were that were that were recently passed in uh, in in Minnesota. So Charles, it's, is it, there a map anywhere of like the places where facial recognition is explicitly recognized as being okay or banned in certain areas? Because that, that map is, I imagine, it's very colorful recently. And what I'm yeah, saying I mean, that is that within Minneapolis, like many cities, you have highly affluent areas of the city and then you have areas that are not and so i would imagine that if we were to look at a map there would be some areas of the city where you know there there is a lot of policing that happens and then there are others that there is not just based on the demographics yeah no no just just to be clear about this this is a sort of factual point and it's something that the biden administration has actually taken very seriously and kind of ironically you know trump who is supposed to be like mr law and order 
it actually presided over one of the larger increases in violent crime and rapes, murders, um, muggings, uh, carjackings across sort of urban America. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, there are hotspots in these areas and, um, there's some work being done right now, Chris, on the effect of facial recognition bans. Um, and, you know, I have chosen not to fund that research um, because I want it to be like a clinical kind of work that's done by the Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics. And the research thus far shows that there is an increase in crime, both when you couple bail reform with facial recognition bans. And so this is one of those situations where there was a lot of sort of fake news about facial recognition being more racially discriminatory towards minorities. That was only true of the facial recognition products that came from, they were developed in Asian countries. It's not true of the American ones um, or even the Israeli ones to, to give credit to them. So there's, yeah, there's just a lot, like, there's a lot of research here. And I would just commend people like, you know, who are interested in actually just who are stats people, not trying to be political, whatever, like, you know, um, that they just look into things like like the most recent uh, work that was done on this was the district attorney's office in Harris County. Um, They began to do a lot of like statistical work around bail reform in Texas. Um, You know, Houston is actually like kind of a representative city for a lot of like you know crime work that's done so anyway just interesting work um i don't want to belabor the point but yeah anyway get the idea uh i brought uh madad kiani welcome to tech news around the world and then also there was uh meg davis who this seems like it's uh, i imagine you had your hand raised related to the school thing given your background yeah thanks so much tyler really great conversation and um really important issues. I'm just catching up with the story, but to me, this seems like I, I lead a digital health and rights research project uh, at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. And this really seems to me like an, another instance of government's expansive surveillance during the COVID pandemic. And it, you know, while we understand the concerns and the, the real uh, need for a better understanding of how our kids have been affected by the pandemic, at the same time, my question is, and I'm still reading the article, but like what happened to the data? And, and these kids, so when they graduate from high school, mm. does the data get deleted or does it just stay with gaggle you know, as a treasure trove? I mean, is that why it was, you know, relatively low cost? Imagine so you watched Furry Pern once as a 12-year-old and now essentially this is now on your permanent profile for all of the time, immortalized essentially in the data sets for marketers for the rest of your life that you can never escape. My, my that, understanding yeah. is that the data quality in this That's particular what... case wasn't very good. But... And then, in fact, yeah, Meg has so a great point because you combine that with the fact that like people get, you know, canceled for saying something inappropriate for 10 years ago. I mean, I can foresee somebody's running for mayor, you know, 30 years from now. And they said they were, you know, when they were 13, they said they were going to kill themselves or, you know, they looked at some porn when they were 14 years old on this guy, you know, some cartoon porn when you were 14 and now you're running for mayor 30 years later. Sorry, you can't, you know, your life's over because looks like, looks like it's homeschooling for my kids. That's what it's going to be used to inform algorithms. It's going to be used to drive kids attention in different ways. So, you know, it's it's going to have multiple uses. It's a, it's a great boon for Gaggle. But anyway, thanks. Very interesting discussion. Such a great point, Meg. Thank you for that. To, um, they they, they threatened us with a permanent record when we were kids that didn't exist. Yes, they and said now, it follows for, here it is. for life. <laughs> and now it actually exists. We didn't even know what a permanent 
<laughs> there's there's I a possible remember, take I remember on. my high school was one of the first high schools in the country to get Facebook and I was the last of my friends and I the first thing and only thing I put up on Facebook for the longest time was I think this is a really bad idea but Tina's making me do it and she's my girlfriend and it's now been you know it's now been quite a number of years and Tina recently reminded me that I'd made that post half of my lifetime ago and uh, I just so I, I do think the permanent record has long been here and we've been participating in it. But I do think this this sort of automation of the permanent record starting with young kids is kind of is sick. And on that point, like, I, I don't know, I assume you guys already talked about the Wall Street Journal story, uh, you know, about how uh, Facebook has admitted in internal documents that one in three girls in uh, teenage years are sort of having like difficulties largely brought about because of Instagram. Um, and the ways in which, you know, they, they're sort of shades of big tobacco here, where basically Facebook knew that um, the Instagram algorithm was hurting, you know, uh, basically teenage girls and essentially did very little to do anything to, to mitigate that. No, no, they made money. We're talking that's, about their that's, body. That's the more crazy. That was the big we covered that at length yesterday. That was probably our biggest story like yesterday. Hour, yeah. I, I have a fun little anecdote. It's very short. The uh, my. Uh, uh, at University of Colorado, there's a professor there essentially is doing facial recognition tech or whatever, right? And uh, <laughs> I asked him essentially like how they're training the data sets. He's like, oh, we've got a camera. We can actually like see everyone on the campus as they're going between classes and recognize them and basically predict where they're going to be and stuff. And this is going for military algorithms. I'm like, do the students realize this? And he's like, well, it cleared an ethics board, so that should be good enough. And I'm like, do the students realize it? It's like, no, nah, we don't need to ask their permission. So it's like, okay. But then I asked him an interesting question. I was like, so what do you have for your Facebook profiles and stuff? He's like, oh, I don't put my face out there with things. I don't want anyone to like, you know, look at that stuff. So I'm like, well, what do you have? And he's like, well, I've got a, I've got pictures of my cat. And essentially I asked all my friends to tag all the pictures of their cats as well. So whenever Facebook basically tries to basically see me, they, 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 they think that I'm a cat. <laughs> Apparently he's having a lot of fun screwing with their algorithms. Uh, when you start seeing actual people that basically have knowledge of how the algorithms work, actually try to actually modify the things and actually have them like work or not work, I think it's going to get a lot more interesting. But right now it's very much in a, people are still not really understanding what these things can do and not do. And so you have these really weird random articles about like, oh no, someone was black and they got mis misfiled as essentially as relation to some sort of animal. And it's like, okay, that's, that's, that's one aspect, but there's a lot more interesting components about this stuff that this is a surface level understanding here. So hey, I, Chris, it's going to be interesting on the more interesting stuff. I have a confession on my Facebook for the past two years. All I've done is take memories and reserve them back to Facebook. <laughs> so I'd there's... like to ask a quick, 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 quick question, if possible, Tyler, on the whole sort of permanent record thing and everything else that we were just talking about, and on the on on the school aspect. Um, one thing on that, it's it just quickly like that. When I was in high school, I my school email address and everything else and everything that I used for the um, the computers that I used while I was in that, I knew that was being tracked. I told that was being tracked. I just wouldn't use it. I mean, one could argue that the children do have the right not to use their school accounts while outside of the school if the school is already letting them know that everything is being tracked. But that set aside, I wonder, what do people think that if we get to a point where you do have a permanent record, where absolutely everybody has a fully indexable, searchable history of everything that they've ever done in the past and anything they've ever done in public that's been recorded and everything else, once that transparency of how you've spent your life, would that bring about more equilibrium between people? It would be very hard for you to stand on stage as maybe some sort of uh, religious 
extremist and 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 spout hatred for certain sectors of society for instance and try and galvanize them maybe as like a a far right representative if anybody could look into your past and see all the things that you did as like it's hard for you to go on a rant about the dangers of pornography when anybody can go in the past and see how you spent your time online so would that would that breed more intolerance if anybody could do that at any time with anyone this well, is already Carl, actively I, I, used on Snowden disclosures with things. They actually had a, a, a section in there for monitoring for porn usage for imams and for religious leaders. They actually already have that a part of operational doctrine, apparently. Um, another component to throw on there is uh, uh, I, I consider essentially black markets for any sort of thing. Uh, when you have money, you can pay for things. Imagine being able to pay for privacy because you have lawyers that have essentially a different level of uh, you know, um, uh, a, a private uh, lawyer-client uh, attorney privileges. Uh, you can basically shove away thing, everything through them. That's very expensive to do so, but there's other variations of that. Imagine essentially a sort of data black market for make me look like I'm electable. Make me look essentially like I'm respectable, but it costs money to do so. And, well, if you don't have money for that, that's okay. You can get this other sponsor to pay for it, but now you're representing their interests. I think it's not going to basically make it go away as a perfect record. I, I think, I think it, it, we have to understand that these, these things are affect us differently based on who we are. So for women, total transparency means a very high degree of risk for online violence and, and violence in real life. For people living with HIV, I work a lot with people living with HIV, LGBTIQ people. Not everyone can you know, uh, afford to have everything in their lives uh, publicly displayed. And so I think we have to understand that you know, that experience of uh, transparency is very different depending on who you are. Yeah, but if, if, we, if the path is towards a big brother blockchain where everything is recorded and that's imposed by governments because it's not only tied to your social security number, but really everything is recorded because it can be traced, it can be found in internet, it can be, you know, so it's in a way, and that I think, it, Meg, you have a good, good point here from a, one part is a human rights perspective. The other is then the human health perspective, because again, this something can harm you and you might not even have, a, it's your fault, but it's stamped here because you got banned somewhere in some app or whatever, uh, or somebody says you have done something and you don't know how to defend this one. Again, I think it's an extremely dangerous pathway of um, the power of governments over you. You can see that in China with the data. Yeah, and then um, everything is imprinted and it's there forever. Yeah, and you have to deal with it. And I believe that will lead a path where actually more people will have suicides. More people will not, you know, uh, can, have, will have a difficulty to live with this because at the end, even your insurer, insurance company, yeah, can say because based on your behavior, how much you will pay if you sleep enough, if you eat enough, if you're healthy enough, if you behave good. Exactly. And that yep. is everything yep. is, you know, the only reason basically at the end, you're, you, yeah, just, it's just a, a rabbit hole, which is a, which is a pretty. God forbid you're a dissident says something that the uh, government doesn't agree with. To be, to be fair, like I actually favor a lot of this tracking. Um, and so I, I might take the other side of this, which is, and um, which is that, you know, I'm of the view that more information leads, you know, usually to more empathy. Um, and, you exactly. know, just as, just as back in the day, you know, one, one, um, and I, I've written about this on my Substack and elsewhere, you know, given talks about this, but like, we used to believe that mothers sort of cause schizophrenia in their children. You know, if you look at like, say the way the gay rights struggle has sort of gone on, where it went from being sort of a fringe thing, that gays could get married to something that's sort of de rigueur throughout, throughout a lot of the world. Not to say that it's perfect, 
But basically, when you have an immutable characteristic that's expressed in your genes, which ultimately is, you know, the makeup of who you are, I think it's very hard to be discriminatory towards people because they can't help who and what they are. And so I do think like the insurance markets and a lot of these things will change over time necessarily um, as more information is given is given up. And I don't favor, you know, banning you know, banning the use of these technologies. I think uh, on the contrary, I think that just accelerates other data plays that other countries might, might offer. I mean, I don't want to live in a country in which, you know, the U.S. is the only country that doesn't have, you know, facial recognition or doesn't have nuclear weapons. And, with, you know, with respect, I mean, I think that there's a huge problem in, in the financial world in which countries like, you know, Switzerland, to, to take one example, or Dubai, or other countries become sort of like the centers for money laundering, um, which, you know, leads to all sorts of other problems as well, uh, particularly when it comes to despoiling the natural environment and, you know, you know, laundering that into, you know, Swiss bank accounts or, or you know, London property markets. So, so I, yeah, yeah. Charles, can, can, can I add to that? Because I real one, one minute, speak. Florian, yes, yeah, make it, make it brief. Go ahead. I'm just saying this is your perspective from a U.S. perspective. Mm -hmm. I see it the opposite. Mm -hmm. I see it's easy to to to, to have money laundered done in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to open a bank account. It's very easy to create an account. Again, this is more control mechanism with FATCA and everything beyond that. I'm not saying that things have to be cleaner. My question is more on the ethical side. Who is actually making sure that this is used for the sake of humanity and not just for power and money mm -hmm. throughout you know, different governments and, and, and people and companies around the world. Okay, so check this out. So in this article, the, the, you know how articles always have this big breakout quote uh, section. And in this article, the breakout quote section says, I'm trying, it's a quote from Matt Shaver, former Minneapolis public school teacher. And he says, I'm trying to imagine finding out about this as a high schooler that every single word I've written in a Google Hangout or whatever is being monitored. We live in a country with laws around unreasonable search and seizure and surveillance is just really slippery slope. Okay, hold that thought because governments, as we've mentioned here in Tech News Around the World, are obviously recent, relatively recently figured out the power of data. And to that point, somebody shared a headline recently uh, and watch how interesting this gets. So from the Times of Israel, uh, the headline reads, the new uh, Prime Minister Bennett says, Israel to genetically scan all arrivals uh, in Israel uh, for the coronavirus. Of course, genetically scanning means they're, they're going to take a DNA sample, and of course they'll build a DNA Ooh. database. And, and Charles and myself have both been reminding people kind of somewhat regularly that Governments are going to do this. I, I don't. I think we can come clean on this and say, governments knowing about the power of data and your data in your Google Hangouts is one thing, but your genetic data is another. And there's now multiple reports of countries, and I, there was a headline even published that I believe was somewhere in the Middle East. I want to say it was the UAE that had a kind of similar to this sort of announced that they had ambitions to collect all of the. DNA of everybody arriving at their immigration desks. Um, China, it's, it's reported in the New York Times that China's building a genetic database of everybody. So um, if, if governments understand the power of data and DNA is very powerful data, 
Governments are going to collect the DNA of everybody, whether we know it or not. And by the way, there was another article about in Orange County, how they're collecting data and how the L.A. Police Department is collecting everybody's social media data. Like data collection is going to happen. DNA data collection is going to happen in mass. Um, as usual, China's just at the first because they're the ones that understood the power of data. But what are we to make of a world where DNA databases are going to exist? And insurance companies are going to want access to that. And they're going to get hacked. And they will get <laughs> that too. And um, so here, watch this next headline. The very, this is, you. I swear on my um, um, father, my mother, my sister, whatever you want. The next story, I don't pick the sequence of these stories. The next story is from the Financial Times. Irish data commissioner launches GDPR probe over children's data and china transfers and the the actual headline is irish data commissioner launches gdpr probe into tiktok over its handling of children's data and the transfer of user information to china are they doing the think of the children line uh the irish data commissioner yeah hold on ireland's data protection commission which oversees the enforcement of the eu's gdpr in the country announced on tuesday that it would examine the company's TikTok's processing of personal data for under 18-year-olds, including the company's age verification measures for under 13-year-olds. A second inquiry will examine TikTok's alleged transfers of personal data to China. Companies can be fined up to 4% of annual global revenues, or 20 million pounds, for GDPR breaches. TikTok reported annual revenues of $34 billion in 2020 an increase of 111% from the previous year. TikTok is in the process of opening an EU Dublin. Oh, oh, oh. TikTok's in the process of opening their EU headquarters in Dublin. Okay, so they just negotiating the tax rate at this point, or are they actually going to do anything about stuff? I mean, it's like, I I kind of get a feeling with some of these things, it's like, they they just look at the local tax rate and go, well, we can boost that a little bit, or we could actually enforce the law. Well, we could do both. And and does anything actually change? Well, no, but we regulate it. So that that fixes it. No, 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 no. Um, in the case of TikTok, in the case of, uh, you know, Ireland, UK agreements, you're going to see a lot more anti-TikTok uh, stuff in the very near future in the West, particularly in a lot of the European countries. And you're going to start seeing it much faster than you would expect. Um, GDPR is basically a vehicle. It's a protectionist weapon really under the guise of privacy that the Europeans use. But this is a very deliberate strategy and you're going to see a lot more of it, um, you know, in the in the not in the not too distant future when it comes to these kind of tech plays. One of the things you'll also note, by the way, is there have been all these so-called privacy investigations of, of things like Clearview. But there are all these investigations and yet there's never an actual conclusion to those investigations oftentimes. And the reason for that is that negotiations take place in, you know, government to government over the use of these kind of technologies. In the case of TikTok, in the case of the Chinese generally, they are such bad actors. I mean, running around selling people fake vaccines, running around selling them, you know, fake COVID tests, fake PPE. Um, you know, people are starting to really ask the question about is these, you know, what's really going on with the Chinese here? Well, not just like a Chinese thing. It's the fact that they, they aren't coming to the negotiation table. Like uh, recently there was a headline where um, the, the, the COP is coming up with things so that the climate co- uh, convention and uh, along the way, like that we send like what we said, like a, was it a carry with things for like ambassador climate stuff? 
and he flies away to China, and they're like, mm, we'll do a Zoom session with you. Uh, they just met in person with the Taliban kind of thing, but it's like, yeah, we can't be bothered to essentially do that. Biden try call, tries calling for the first thing with stuff, and, uh, and it's like, eh, I didn't really get anywhere with that. If we're not able to have basically leaders actually even talking at the highest levels, especially in centralized government bodies like that, we're not going to be able to make any kind of like progress on anything lower down with stuff. So, I mean, this is the sort of thing where you're going to see ratcheting pressure just to get people to the negotiation table. Cause right now that's not even happening with stuff and it's getting kind of dicey. Uh, I think there was a headline actually recently where <laughs> they're calling up saying, Oh yeah, we, we aren't planning on invading imminently. Uh, that was a thing from uh, another headline. I need to get the thing on that one with stuff, but during the, 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 uh, to Trump's, uh, as he's leaving with things, there was some, some, Apparently, interesting conversations with some military generals around that time. Uh, yeah, I think it, I that, with that. that's way more complicated than it appears, and probably not not good to talk about it on a Chinese app. So, it, it makes it more add, interesting. Oh, sorry, just wanted to add on the DNA side because one thing I myself was not aware of until 2004 was that since 1975, uh, Sweden actually collects the blood sample from every child born. Uh, for for medical research, and we've always had this, <clears throat> regardless of what you think of each government leader, we have a trust in government, which we should have, <laughs> and every we are so used to, as time knows, everything is public. What's privacy? That's been my entire life. <clears throat> but seventy five, they started with the blood samples, which subsequently led to that they have a huge bank of DNA. So by default, each child born since 75, they have a sample that in 2004, when our foreign minister was killed, it of course, it became, it became highlighted because they found the killer that way, because he was born after 75 uh, through DNA. So wow, the, a, that a was vast majority of that data is collected actually in the United States as well and in other governments as yeah. well. The data has not been sequenced for the blood samples. However, state by state, I think like states like Utah essentially have yeah. a large amount of genetic data. There's others, there's other groups. And what's interesting about this as a matter of consent is that this is done as an automatic part of essentially of, of you know having a kid. It's not really something where it's like, hey, would you like this to be reported to an insurance company at some point in the future? It's just something that just happens. So what's going to be interesting is this is an example of samples being collected at one point and then decades into the future becoming much, much more valuable like we're entering that right exactly. now. Exactly. So that and data that's... will become more valuable as time goes on just by existing and just by having part of the physical of samples. Then happened from 75 to 2004. But then, of course, since this is connected to each, since we since forever have a personal security number, social security number uh, is connected to each child. Obviously, that's how they caught this killer. But then in 2004, when this happened, of course, it became a huge blowout here because we are supposed to know about these things. We might say yes by default, but how did the population not know that this is happening? So now you can ask for it to be taken away or deleted, basically, or destroyed as it's a blood sample. But I thought that was very interesting. It was something yeah. I hadn't been aware of for what is it? a lot of years i would say every i think every child born in california now since 1970 um has their um has their dna put onto a little index card um and there are a lot of us who want to actually sequence all of those index cards um and this is something i've talked to the biden administration about and i think look i mean i think there's a compelling state interest in having everybody's genetic sequenced um on the planet 
And I don't just mean, you know, human beings. I mean, I mean, every to quote to quote the old you know, Chinese head of B- BGI, every living thing of consequence. Um, and I think this is how we really preserve biodiversity. I mean, you can see this with the sort of perhaps quixotic attempts to sequence the, ma- the mammoth that's taking place. But, you know, we are going to need to keep an inventory of everything on the planet as more and more things get get extincted by by climate change. And so I think that there's there's a moral case to be made in the case of like I, I know in Estonia, there's a 200,000 person biobank in the UK. I think it's up to 500,000. And for those of us who are of, you know, sw- you know, of, of Estonian or British heritage, this biobank is actually not beneficial to us. Like we are free riders off of the genetic research that comes off of this. And I, I think that for those of us who are of other ethnicities, um, Yes. I mean, I think the United States in particular, I think, has a moral case to be made. I mean, we're now at a stage where it's one hundred dollars to do a full genome sequence. And, you know, that's that's quite, you know, quite amazing. Um, And it's something that we should avail ourselves of. And all right, if the private insurance industry like goes out of business or has to be regulated, so be it. Like it's it's worth knowing these things. And, you know, the company Authorum that I'm involved in has solved a number of murders and rapes using you know, and identified number of missing persons using full genome sequencing. In fact, I think just the other day there was one in Canada that was solved in Yukon uh, where they couldn't identify who the person was. And this sort of thing is like helping families find closure. It's helping people solve murders and rapes. Um, So I think it's all to the good. And I think the, the concern about privacy, you know, maybe we should be more empathetic to people who have, you know, differences of ability or genetics, um, I mean, we, we changed the culture around talking about people who had suffered from, you know, mental, you know, mental difficulties. We're increasingly changing the conversation around mental health issues. Um, maybe we should just be kinder to one another and maybe genetics will show us that over time. Historically, when you make lists of large numbers of people and then there's a large amount of political division, that can cause extremely tempting targets for basically everything from saying, hey, you were in the wrong place at the wrong exactly. time to... These people groups essentially are subhuman and essentially they should be wiped out. And by the way, not just those people, anyone connected to those people. So this is essentially something that's very dangerous to leave lying around because it's almost like a, leaving like a loaded gun, essentially, rather than essentially having you have to carefully assemble and you know, put the individual components. The easier we make these data sets available as new capabilities are discovered and as technology rapidly uh, accelerates, the the um, timeline that it takes to actually consider the implications of any decision is going to shrink to the point where you know you wake up one day and you find out oh wait they have samples in every single person on on in, in a certain population group oh wait suddenly essentially that population group is no longer popular because of the reason x y or z and then you've got problems like you have over in China where they're basically literally uh, saying well this people group shouldn't exist anymore and then they're just you know methodically going out and sterilizing you know millions of people with that. We are basically entering into a world where that is a realistic concern and it should be taken into account with these threat considerations. I mean, um, I think what, what, uh, with what Charles was saying, uh, I would agree that if it's used in a positive manner, then yeah, I mean, there's a million different amazing things that you can do by, you know, by knowing and having that data. But the real issue is that, you know, people, people don't have that trust anymore. Most people don't have the trust on their, mm. you know, big brother government. They don't have that trust. So the, the question that would come up for the average person is, especially if it's something that is mandatory and if, you know, if it's just something that's collected no matter what, the main question is going to be, well, why? Why? Why is my data? Why is everything that you need to know? What every single conversation I have, every single, 
you know, uh, my genetic makeup. Why, why is it so important for you? You know, how have we come along all the time? You know, and, and the reality is that it could fall in the wrong hands. It could be misused. It is proven that this happens all the time and that, you know, human error does exist even in the world and, you know, the world of, uh, technology and, and computers. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I would, I would say right now there's a moral imperative to sequence everyone. If we're going to be doing things like having vaccine mandates where there are people who are subsets of the population that will be harmed by these vaccine mandates, the one size fits all approach doesn't work. We've, we've had uh, vaccine mandates for, for a very long time. I don't know how many people on this uh, call right now have polio, but if you don't have polio, there's probably a really good reason for that. Well, actually, vaccines, oh. are, I mean, they're the what for one, the mRNA vaccine is not actually a vaccine. So like, it's in, you know, so there's that. Um, but but in the case of polio, I mean, polio's, you know, the polio vaccine has stood the trust, test of time. I believe there was a 15 year longitudinal study, not just a 10 year longitudinal study. So I don't want to go like belabor the point about like, current events. I mean, I'm sure we could do things like, you know, the, in the case of, you know, most recently, we have situations where people are overdiagnosing uh, um, nursing home people in the United States and saying that they have that they have schiz- you know, schizophrenia so as to drug them so as to take more money from them when they have things like dementia. Um, and there's sort of all sorts of abuses that take place in our hospitals, in our schools, when we don't really know about our student body. And I favor for what it's worth, I favor every single person on the planet. Uh, being sequenced, um, including the dead, by the way, I should add, I think that there's a compelling case to be made for genetically sequencing people who've, de- who've been deceased, just to deal with questions of paternity, to deal with questions of health. Um, and I think, by the way, this is going to happen, whether people here like it or not. Um, in fact, like these are conversations that are occurring right now um, by the Biden administration about what to do with all 100,000 plus Afghans who've left Afghanistan, given that there are all sorts of health issues there. And so um, I, I think it's the morally correct thing to sequence these people, particularly the ones that have issues of cousin marriage, which you know, will have a taxing effect on our healthcare system in the United States. Um, you know, there are issues that come with tribal societies versus modern societies. Mm-hmm. That we need to sort of figure out how to accommodate. So I don't I don't want to like overstate if, this, but like if it's Charles, happening. <clears throat> so there's two separate issues. One is taking DNA samples of everyone. The other issue is uh, sequencing human genome to the degree where we uh, understand and inevitably will start to classify some genes as quote unquote bad genes. Like some people have the gene for, like you say, schizophrenia, or maybe even we get to a point where we understand the likely, the propensity to cause murder or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Psychopath. I'm going to interrupt real quick. Are there yeah. any biologists or geneticists in the room? Because I feel like we're, we're, we're going into a territory where some of that expertise would be really useful. Well, my point is this is if we do get to a point where we start having quote unquote bad genes, right? Where we start to label, this is clearly a bad gene. Like we, this is something people don't, don't want. Are we going to then have a, a right of replication where People are you're going to have to get approval if you, uh, you know, we, we take it for granted that people have the right to reproduce. It's not listed in the Bill of Rights, um, but, you know, like freedom of speech. But you have, you know, the right to reproduce. Uh, but is that something that the state is then once the state understands that there are bad genes, out there, the state's going to want to mandate um, you're going to need a replication passport, so to speak, based on your genetics. 
So this really I sounds really, really dystopian for, for real, but it, there have been quite a few movies uh, and well, the, we- the Uyghurs would say this scenario. exists. By the Johan, the Uyghurs would say this exists today in China. Exactly. Yeah. Could be if aware I, if that I we just... have had this uh, selection of who are allowed to reproduce in Sweden, and I kid you not, this didn't end in Sweden until the, in the middle of the seventies. From the sixties, during the sixties, we circumcised, uh, uh, sterilized uh, both men and women. Uh, that were from some ethnical groups uh, and uh, some of them would actually uh, shock you because we actually sterilized cigoiners in Sweden in in the 60s for real and we also sterilized uh, mentally handicapped uh, men and women and this was under full government control and the number would probably shock you because it's over 60,000 that has been sterilized by the Swedish state in the 1900s. Go figure well, that one out. in Canada with things of sterilization of indigenous populations. It's still going on in some capacities. Well, yeah, but in Sweden, I mean, seriously. Let's take, I mean, to, 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 to answer Tyler's question, there's sort of no like candidate genes, right? That's sort of like the wrong way of thinking about it. It's there are these things called polygenic scores. And the way it kind of works is you build up a very large data set of people's genetic, you know, genetics, and then you match it to a phenotypic trait, say their height, their intelligence. And then what you do is you give somebody sort of a probabilistic estimate based upon their genetics. So you could imagine it like a, like a, a bell curve distribution. And they could imagine people being at the top end and the low end of that bell curve. And yeah, I mean, I think what will happen um, is people will know this when they do things like dating, right? Uh, they'll know these things about, you know, uh, their future children, which we see with IVF right now, where, you know, like there are many women that, that consider IVF and they have to make a decision or, you know, with their partner or, or what have you um, about, uh, you know, which which of their fertilized eggs do they bring to term and which ones they they keep in the cooler, as it were? Um, and so that those are questions that I think are, are questions that are going to have like cultural and maybe even legal questions associated with it. I mean, one could imagine a scenario in which somebody was selecting for sociopathic traits or psychopathic traits rather than against them. Right. So, that, you know, I think we're going to have to sort of figure out what is sort of acceptable or not acceptable when it comes to genetic selection here. And, you know, this world is very much at hand. I mean, there are people who are, there are children walking among us today who have been selected, you know, through, you know, through basically polygenic scores to eliminate things like diabetes or like uh, high levels of heart disease, um, you know, through IVF. Now, I don't think you can have reproductive rights in, in a serious sense without um, also allowing this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of enhanced choice um, that goes on. Um, you know, I, if you look at there are a whole bunch of countries where lots of women don't give birth to Down syndrome kids relative to their population as a whole. Now, I think that that should be a choice that's left up to a woman and, you know, and to her family and making those decisions, you know, secondarily. But obviously, you know, other societies are going to have to figure out their own uh, adjustment with these these questions. Um, and to some extent, you know, we have eugenic policies already. I mean, they're there are not that many people who are, you know, homeless guys having lots of children. Right. And in the case of the West, you know, you see this with 
uh, of, you know, people not able to able to afford having children in major cities, right? Having to leave the city to have children. And and that's sort of something that we're, we're seeing across the world, these sort of questions. So I think the idea of just sort of like dodging the thing or sort of making like, oh, because we have a census or because we have driver's licenses will necessarily be like, you know, Hitler, Hitler, Hitlery, I think is kind of like kind of silly. Um, now, in the case of China, that's a sort of special case, right? Because the Chinese state has has decided that they're going to be a rogue actor. And we unfortunately are complicit. Everyone who's on an iPhone right now or who buys things from China is complicit in basically, you know, that relationship. And we should be pressuring our governments. Our governments should be looking for other supply lines. I mean, we should isolate, uh, you know, this rogue regime. We should not participate in the genocide Olympics that are coming up. Like There are lots of ways in which we can make our discontent known um, over these policies uh, that other countries are pursuing. Um, that we do right now. I mean, just today, you know, there's more stuff coming out about UAE, um, you know, hiring Americans to hack. Uh, there are other examples of like Pegasus, you know, and, and Israel, you know, misbehaving. And that, that led to this sort of essentially led to the fall of the Netanyahu government. So I think there are lots of ways in which we as an international community can set standards here that are acceptable or not acceptable. Let me um, hold on. Hold on. Let me, oh, excuse me. Let me jump in here. Let, let, so wait, wait, wait. Let Neta go first and then you go LS. Thank you. Um, Charles, you know, as I'm sure you know this better than me, actually, uh, obviously. Um, but some of the reasons that we were talking about, as an example, there was a genome project, I believe it was in UC Davis, if I'm not mistaken. And for instance, that there were uh, scientists, which Iranian scientists were also included. I think they were heading the, the project. They were able to get funded for the purpose of protecting and to understand, you know, the genetics of the race uh, let's say for the Iranians, the Persian uh, uh, DNA, the heritage, and they were trying to find out for the purpose of let's find out, let's gather as much as we can so that we know exactly what kind of diseases and what kind of illnesses they're more likely to get and, you know, they're more susceptible to so that in order we can create some kind of a, a, a way to, you know, to predict it and to prevent it. The downside of that was that, of course, a lot of people started freaking out and saying that, well, you know, where's this funding coming from and why? Because by knowing that, by knowing the, you know, what their uh, susceptibilities are, you can also then create something to counter them. You can also create something to make them more sick. Hence walks in this, uh, the virus, which, you know, people started freaking out about. And, you know, it was all over the, in the conversations and saying that, well, why are the Iranians, why are the Persian heritage getting hit or dying so much more? And closer at that point when it was first starting out, the same thing with Italy and saying that we're genetically close with the Italians. Why are the Italians and why are the Iranians getting hit as, as hard as they are, as bad as they are in, you know, in comparison, which led into, you know, a lot of different conversations and, you know, the, the safety of uh, the data of gathering this DNA and how we could be used, you know, against the people if it's in the wrong hands. And now as a result of it, now you've got people inside the country in Iran. Uh, not trusting any of the vaccines that's coming out and saying that we're going to do something, we'll, we'll make it and we'll create it for ourselves because we don't know what the intentions are. So, I mean, there's so many different layers to it. For sure. And, and race-specific bio, race bioweapons are being built all around the world right now. And the countermeasures to them are being built as well. That's, that's a real thing that's happening and people should know about it. Okay. I think each country is responsible for doing that for themselves, you know. LS. Play it safe. Yeah, I don't, 
you know, I don't want to belabor the point. I was just going to jump in with Charles on one point, and I think Nadia kind of covered it. But um, it's intriguing because Lakeisha said something earlier. And I think with tech, you know, I don't want to be too belabored on this, but I was speaking to Stephen Ibarki um, recently, who is the founding member of the AI for Good Global Summit for the United Nations and also on the World Health Organization, Global Artificial Intelligence for Global Health. And so we were talking about what happens with tech when it goes good or bad. And it's so, it's sad. I mean, I, I agree with Akisha, like, and, and, and Nadia, when this can be turned, how can we help, you know, minorities not do the propensity of diseases, which is what Charles is saying. How do you, you know, do this in a lab and predict the DNA and the, the, the human genome? And DeepMind just did this protein fold, which leads into something else. So we can learn from that and prevent these diseases. But if it's in the wrong hands, which will always have the plausibility of being, then it could be used against it. So I think, you know, the sword always slices both ways and it's intriguing, but I don't think we keep a genie in a bottle for tech um, out of fear. I guess that's my main point because the world's going to go there anyway. And I mean, if, if we really thought this way, we would have peace on earth. And, and Tyler, actually, I mentioned you in the interview. I told <laughs> Sheryl and Akisha about that. They know. Sheryl and Akisha could back channel you. But I talked about you in the inner city. Like, it, it won't change. It'll just be the same shit. Excuse my language. And sometimes I get tired of it. You know, it's just, it's repeating because I'm too old for this. It's just the same circle going over. Like, why do we not have peace on earth? And why? I mean, I understand bad actors. I, I get all that. I was in the Marine Corps and all that. I, I get it. But... It's like we're iterating so advanced. You know, we're going to we're going to metaverses, quantum machine learning. We're heading. We're, we're doing this. Uh, those of us who are doing it, and and so we see what's coming. But then the world's like still back in the dark ages at times, arguing over, you know, do you get vaccinated or not? And you know, I mean, it's just it's just weird. So sometimes I, I just think you know we keep going forward and we keep checking ourselves as humanity and. But we, we, we use these technologies to help, you know, where, where my heart is, the, the indigenous and, and, and African-American and, 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 and minorities throughout the world, because my son's from Ethiopia, Africa, and all of these other countries that have just been suffering because they don't know their DNA perplexity. They don't even know, you know, they don't know what will kill them in 10 years. So they just keep eating chicken fried chicken and whatever, not exercising, you know, not knowing, and I'm not blaming anyone or criticizing anyone, not knowing that they might have a DNA propensity against that, that's going to kill them. So, you know, figure it out. And, and if they can be helped with that, that's good. And yes, some insurance company and all these will, will take well, advantage of it, but we well, can dial I, it back. I'm imagining in the same way that lately there's the, you know, well, well, as a white man or as a Jewish, you know, woman or as a this or that what happens when we sequence our genomes and we're like well as someone with gene number 5327 that does you know <laughs> the politics on the extreme yeah. no we do this we we do this already well, in the genetic wait finish community. the point though finish your point Tyler. i'm, I'm just saying like is that not inevitable because i i'm somebody who's genetically right. predisposed dis, you know has a disposition towards feeling a certain way or you know it, it creates. Well, well and I, I, I want to believe, and I'm well, not no, just naive. Well, just check this out. We currently not, we, not all of us. Uh, I, I try and actively go against this, but uh, people, there's a tendency for people to segment based on 
different characteristics, be it age or, you know, as an older white, bald male or whatever, like people say are uh, segment based on different characteristics based on the ones that we can observe. But there's a whole lot of other characteristics genetically that we don't observe and that, that we will as a recognized sociopath. Right. So yes, as somebody with the sociopath gene or whatever, my point is we're going to be able to segment in a thousand different ways that we don't currently do today when we understand the genetic sequencing i can hear the pollsters licking their lips already you know? <laughs> so going to be the first one to start the, uh, the 538 of the future the, the but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm just gonna push back sorry to be different and you know me tyler i'm just always gonna say what i say but you know you me and you know we're, we're we both know the age parameter of myself and you so when youtube first came online you know there was more racism going on in the world about uh, people and black friends and all of this other stuff and racism around the world. Um, my son, which you know about, but, yeah. you know, he started connecting with people on YouTube. And I, I swear, I've heard stories, and I can live in a bubble, but I don't, that more people connected by seeing other young kids around the world saying, that person's just like me. So I, what we don't hear in the media, and you're good to bring that to the light, we don't hear about all the positive damn stories that are going on that. Oh, yeah, I connected with a kid in Pakistan, and he's like me, and, and we think the same way. And this is what, you know, even with Facebook, all of this negativism, you know, that they get is the good, because when you can connect, they can see reality. So I'm always looking at the world in a macro-balanced way, where Twitter and all of these things have helped take out these negative regimes, brought highlight to news that wasn't covered because it wasn't politically savvy, and, you know, we're always like the underground. You, you don't know the truth. And I, I really believe humanity will get there. We just got to always, let me be clear. We got to always keep this shit as a check and balance as humanity. So we've got to always check power. Okay. You know, we got to check ourselves. Well, and that's it. So here, t- t- just, just a quick one on, on okay, that. Okay, last thought here. Go there's, ahead, there's, Dave. There's, so there's, there's, that was a really nice, like, good discussion around genes, sequencing, DNA. Like, we heard the arguments for, we heard the arguments against, like, could we do a little poll to t- try and conclude it, or is it a bit? What do what what, what do you what to, in your mind is the right poll question? Uh, well, um, do, do we think that um, gene and DNA sequencing could be could be a more of a force for good than bad if curated in the right way? Something like that. I think, well. We or, could, or 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 the inverse. Either way, I'm just trying to get a, a sense. Or are people like, optimistic or pessimistic about yeah, yeah, the future of genetics? It's it's both simultaneously. It's going to be wildly, unimaginably positive and negative. I think that we, we can't even yet fully grasp how tremendously positive things can get as a result of all the genetic ev- revolution that's about to occur and the 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 the, op- the causes for optimism and pessimism or the dystopian and the non-dystopian uh, scenarios are going to be tremendous by the way the, the the polling evidence on this is when people discover that they have family members right that they didn't know they had like illegitimate children you know, cousins, whatever. Okay, Charles. <laughs> the, the polling on this, just to be clear on this, the polling on this is that they ask them like, hey, now that you've met your illegitimate kid or your, you know, your dad you didn't know you had, whatever, right? The, the polling is that, would you, would you rather have not known? Like, do you have regrets about learning this? And something like fewer than 5% of people who are interviewed 
uh, you know, describe having a bad, a bad experience. In fact, if you just go and you look, you know, you Google sometime, you know, reunited through genetics or 23andMe or yeah, Ancestry. Okay. You know, like that's a real thing that's happening and people, people's lives are upended. So by check it. this yeah. out. So, I'm optimistic. So yeah, Cheryl's optimistic. So the next one is, uh, and uh, again, I don't make the order here. Uh, the next one's from Financial Times, and it's only a couple hours old, uh, about Amazon's plans to expand into healthcare as it prepares to launch services such as telehealth and technology for managing healthcare records. And Amazon uh, loves data, perhaps more than any company ever. And um, Amazon's getting super, super interested in health. And that's what this Financial Times article is about. The e-commerce company is developing services for consumers and hospitals, but faces competition from Google, Microsoft, and Walmart. Millions. And then the point is we're going on about genetics. Knowing Amazon's tendencies, uh, we have to assume uh, that, you know, this whole genetic data health and as it says, Google and Microsoft and, and Amazon all going into health. How well, Google's already got a head start on the genetics thing. Like, uh, you know, Sergey's uh, partner is the co founder of 23andMe. And I, if you think that's a coincidence, you're an idiot. So um, here, here comes big data with uh, big, big health and a whole lot of you if you don't think how that they're going to be jumping headfirst into dna uh that's you're not following the trends so what to think of the Tyler, i think priests should be getting ready for uh, a whole load of visits of uh last me father for next to the next to the big tech should... headquarters yes i think that we should be getting ready for putting genes on blockchain Oh, that is a whole other dimension, yeah. <laughs> Good to see you back, Shira. So the this the headline from Financial Times says: Over the past year, a tie-up between the network of eight hospitals and its cloud computing arm, Amazon Web Services, has led to voice activation being built into experimental operation operating theater powered by much of the same technology found in the Alexa Assistant. The commands start running through vital steps of the operation, allowing the surgeon to verbally confirm when he or she has taken certain actions, such as administering anesthesia. Oh, that's interesting. So Alexa can tell you, okay, step one is this, step two is this, step three is this, step four is this. That could be used in a, an incredible amount of use cases, not just in medicine for a, for oh, a surgeon. Huge. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's, there's there's some work being done with HoloLens things for for um and and imagine we've actually experimented this uh, too with uh, XR essentially like step by step instructions. It's one of the few market segments that actually has like strong revenues with it in corporate training environments and skills transfer. Um, it, it, there's a group called PT, uh, uh, and uh, I think it's actually PTR. I need to look it up again with things, but they do uh, essentially the uh, Euphoria uh, tracking targets. And uh, essentially, it's one of the few augmented reality companies that actually makes money. Um, there's a lot of hype in the industry. There's an enormous amount of amazing technology. What, what there hasn't been is a lot of revenue. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about this is that as you start then you have a hot those skills transfers become really huge step by step. Being able to document that knowledge, especially as workers retiring or as essentially as you're starting to onboard essentially with labor shortages or being able to amplify I, um uh, the, the the ability for workers to basically rapidly come up to speed and reduce training time 
it's a very straightforward calculation to run on whether or not it's worth the technology investment. And many companies that run that calculation are willing to spend on it. So it's, 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 it's that's a more exciting sector. If people want to get a jump into XR, look up anything XR related to training or skills transfer or things related to the uh, step-by-step instructions because voice mm. commands and the voice integration, mm. that's one of those huge components that allows you to do the hands-free, which is, okay. it, Ir- it, it, there's no exciting Irvin, stuff over there. Irvin, I invited you up and I don't see you on stage, so you might need to bounce out and back in. But the headline says here, um, the the system represents one of slice of Amazon's plans to become just as ubiquitous in healthcare as it is in other markets. Well, that's wildly ubiquitous. That's uh, <laughs> um, producing the tools well, and platforms to underpin an industry on the cusp of dramatic modernization. The company's in the process of unveiling a flurry of consumer-facing healthcare services such as online pharmacy and telehealth at the same time. It is steadily developing its capabilities with AWS, an effort to create a new operating system for care that ranges from managing health records to applying AI to predict when a person may become ill. And and diagnostics, uh, point of care, um, you know, tune in on Friday as we continue the story. You know, first we're going to paint, paint a description of how the healthcare system works, how the, the payers in America really are the boss, and uh, how... The giants like Amazon, Walmart, and Disney have tried to tackle problems that they face. Um, But, you know, Amazon is gearing up. I mean, you know, you have an Alexa now that can identify who's in the room, can do the ECGs and the EEGs remotely, um, is listening to you to hear sleep apnea. Um, You know, like Tyler says, can listen to how many times you're flushing in the middle of the night. you know, they're going to start buying, uh, you know, all of your local providers and all of your local providers are going to want to work for Amazon sooner than later. Um, and, and this is how it's going to roll out. So, you know, I would say by 2023, Amazon's going to be in full force. Chris, is this the Friday uh, episode in the morning? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to be just a primer about you know, it's not really going to focus on Amazon. We'll probably do a more focused one on what we think Amazon's going to do, but it's going to really describe, like, like for example, Amazon as an employer, it doesn't have the same challenges as a wall, maybe similar to Walmart, but not the same challenges as say a Disney where Disney's got regional um, concentration of employees. So, you know, if you're regionally centered, you can set up hospitals, find the best providers regionally. Um, if you're someone like Amazon, you really have to cast a wide net. You're like every 20 miles in America, right? So you got to find uh, providers everywhere. And like h- how they beta test it is they beta test it on their own employees and they can see very well which employers are healthier and which aren't. And they pick the winners, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so they do they do all this A-B testing on the healthcare system. So, you know, Walmart, for example, doesn't matter if you're a rank and file or if you're an executive. If you have a heart condition, you're going to Mayo Clinic or you're going to, you know, the the Cleveland Clinic, you know, the best the best centers of excellence. That's where they're treating their patient, their, their employees, because they know they're going to get results. It's going to well, cost they, them. Lo- they less do. The they do until Amazon buys the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> and, then exactly. Amazon, <laughs> and then Amazon's like, we'll take that. Thank you very much. Because looking at this article from Financial Times, that makes the argument like, Amazon, just reading it and connecting the dots, Amazon's likely to take over healthcare. They call it Amazon Care. 
It says, in July this year, Amazon launched Amazon DX, a service that offers at-home testing for COVID-19, where people order a kit off Amazon.com and send it back for testing and results within 24 hours. It's likely just the beginning. Job advertisements points to future ambitions to roll out a number of different tests. One posting recently sought a person with the skills and savvy to chart ambitious or new territory with local, state, and national regulators for clinical diagnostics. Like, like they're, they're thinking they're going to do, like, actual, like, go back to the 50s where you had house calls again you that know too. doctors are just gonna yeah if gonna need be, working be for amazon right and, and nurses that come and do blood draws you know and and people that are you know oh here's your package and by the way i'm gonna take your blood or, or you more than that chris and we'll be short with this you can just do your you can just take your own blood drop it off at That's an amazon exactly. locker and they'll pick it up and take it to the lab so i know um Four or five years ago when I was in Ohio, we did some work with Cleveland Clinic and um, they even then were investing big in big data. So it would really be interesting to know what, you know, Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic are doing in the space. Actually, a friend of Cal's and mine, Rita Khan, is the chief technology officer for Mayo. So I'm going to see if I can get her into one of the... Um, and if Faraz sessions. can get in here too, because his partner is uh, responsible for. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step over you, Lakeisha. No, that's um, quite all right. I just didn't know if my audio had gone out. Sorry. But but yeah, it would be really be interesting to know what's happening from you know from from the healthcare side as you know they are embracing technology because I know that they've been at it for you know several years if not many more now and how they are positioning themselves um, with Amazon and with Walmart and Best Buy and others entering into their space. It says Amazon has uh, multiple companies have signed up to use Amazon Care and the company has reportedly been in talks with major issuers, according to a Business Insider report in July, in an effort to become a benefit for tens of millions of more patients. Amazon said it would not comment on speculation about its plans. We have to, uh, we have to approach this with a sense of humility, says Amazon's executive. Um, meaning they want to take yeah, Amazon's humility? humility? Wait, what? <laughs> That, that humility will be required whenever, like, because this, this, the whole AI taking over jobs, this, this is the clearest route to, like, radiographers, you know, all of that, the dispensing, the kind of more, mon, you know, uh, routine part of health. Yep. So I think, like, th this is going to be the big, um, the way, well, the way that it's going to be done, i.e., you know, Amazon putting out um, trials with, say, this Mayo place, seeing that it works, and then, like, wholesale adoption. And then, like, that's part of the jobs, like, uh, what would you call it? AI of jobs or whatever they're calling it. Yeah, it says Amazon will make the industry nervous. It says Ariel Trzinski, a principal analyst at Forrester. They have the flexibility to meet the consumer wherever they are with whatever they need. And the industry has spent at least 20 years telling us they're going to make healthcare less confusing, less complex, less costly. That hasn't happened because Amazon doesn't own hospitals. Um, because they don't have an existing structure, they can approach this de novo, which is that they, which is that they can say we we can do whatever is best for you, and there's plenty of money in the healthcare to make a profit. The article makes a point like Amazon can just deliver your meds to you through Amazon, um, and they can reinvent yeah. healthcare they from the bottom they up. Own pill, they already own PillPack. They own everything. 
but the, my well, point it's like it's like the retailers tutter right it's yeah like the retailers with the huge the, store footprint but, but that, I, that are right there just costing I think, loads i like think hospitals I, are the equivalent yes they will do to the medical industry what they've done to retail which is just completely reinvent it to optimize it da- based on data based on logistics uh, but because it's based on data, you have to imagine there's the, you can't not think about DNA when you, when you think about data and medicine in, in the type of notice I'm being very quiet here, Tyler. Yeah. But Tyler, you've already touched that. upon this uh, in the past when you were talking about retail customers and small businesses. We're just going, we're heading there, good or bad, to platform as a service with the logistics to surround it. And that's what Amazon can do. Because if they're a platform, they're not, you know, beholden to a certain state or locality or district or local city or, or government. They can just move globally and then deliver that. And you've talked about this with Kyle for, you know, like about mm-hmm. five months ago yeah. of how these just these, you know, uh, what was it? Spotify and these companies would just Shopify and, and similar to small businesses, how it would just be locally logistics and they'll just deliver it. Mm hmm. So the there's a bunch of fundraising announcements as usual, um, like uh, who's interesting here? Uh, Tia, a provider of virtual and in-person health and wellness services for women, raises a hundred million. And supply chain and logistics cloud software startup Stored raises ninety million. Comcast partners with TV manufacturer Hisense to sell two smart TVs under the brand X-Class. Sydney-based Immutable, which develops Ethereum-based tools to monetize NFTs in games, raises $60 million. And Seattle-based Skykick, which builds software to help SMBs with their cloud infrastructure management, raises $130 million. Um, and that's kind of the... Uh, oh, a formal AI research scientist at Google details how tech companies and the U.S. government hide their surveillance projects in plain sight. Oh, that's that's clickbait. <laughs> I'm on to that one. Uh, let's read that one. I, nobody has sent that one in that I'm aware of. Learning about the Pentagon's drone program through FOIA requests and public filings. It says, when I, when I left Stanford to join Google as an AI research scientist, I went across the street. Well, because they're next door to each other, yeah. As the saying went, uh, I had been a young assistant professor, first at Georgia Tech and then Stanford, doing research that was particularly funded by DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. At one point, I brought up the ethical issues of researching surveillance technologies with the DARPA program manager, but frankly, raising ethical concerns in such a competitive environment felt a bit like labeling myself a troublemaker. I was ready to move away from defense work, getting recognized for software development, and yes, make enough money to move out of my small spider-infested apartment on Alma that shook every time the Caltrain went by. (laughs) (laughs) What's this guy's name? Um... Uh, what's the name here? Jack Paulson. And it's, it's humorous to people who've lived in the Bay area and have ridden Caltran and know where Alma is. And it's kind of a future, a very, uh, funny, uh, narrative he's been here since then. I learned that digging deeply into public records combined with a modicum of data science can lead to greater accountability and transparency. So that's where, uh, a lot of this stuff is hiding in plain sight. 
as, as the headline says, but a really interesting article. So I'm going to tweet that out. And now we're going to get into all the other tweets that everyone else is tweeting out. Like uh, this one from John Cap in the audience from Reuters that China develops machines to track data sent abroad by cars. Ooh. From Reuters. Is this like an IP router thing where they say, hey, if it's going to this place, we want to have a copy? It says China, the world's biggest vehicle market, where regulators are implementing new rules on data protection, is developing machines that will be able to track data sent abroad by cars, a government-backed agency said on Tuesday. Cars are being fitted with an ever-increasing array of sensors and cameras to assist drivers, but the data such equipment generates can also be used by manufacturers to develop new technologies, such as autonomous driving systems, raising privacy and security concerns, particularly when the information is sent abroad. Automakers in China are required to store data generated by vehicles locally and need to get regulatory approval when they need to export critical data abroad. The U.S. car maker Tesla is under scrutiny in China over its storage and handling of customer data. Beijing has increasingly has been increasingly concerned over the mountains of data amassed by private firms and whether such information could be attacked or misused, especially by foreign states. It recently implemented a new data security law and is tightening up overseas oversight in related areas. Reuters reported that staff at some Chinese government offices were told not to park their Tesla cars near government compounds due to security concerns over vehicle cameras, according to two people with knowledge of the matter. China Automotive Engineering Research Institute said in a statement it has developed a system to analyze the path of data transmission by using a communication detection device to monitor uploaded data and data gathered from vehicles in a testing environment. Okay, turnabout's fair play. There's a fun little thing here. Remember Pokemon Go? It's the hot craze all yes. around the world. And then all of a sudden they're saying, wait, wow, the kids are basically finding out things in like you know, churches and public parks and military bases. Why are there a bunch of people walking around like zombies outside the, the military base? Their cameras basically pointed at everything here. They're like, oh, it's the hottest new craze. Don't worry. It's happening to like, you know, a few hundred million people worldwide. And they're like, okay, what's the company? It's like, oh, it's some former guys essentially used to work at, at this little group called Keyhole with things. It's like, wait, isn't that a spinoff <laughs> of like some InQtel stuff? And they're like, oh crap, this is all basically XNSA people. And so they started saying, well, is it a game? Game is the government psyops operation, and it was amazing watching how fast some of the some overseas government groups like started to freak about. So now, now we've got the turnabout fair play version of, hey, guess what? Your kids are playing TikTok and now and dancing essentially the latest moves. Oh, and by the way, the cards are now basically going back and forth. It, it, it's fascinating watching what happens when you have government groups suddenly say that super popular thing is now basically now it's it's having extra functionality uploaded into it. But it, most importantly as well, that if they can attach this to Chinese cars with or, or foreign cars within the Chinese borders, they can attach it to Chinese cars that they're exporting. Hey, they're doing yes. DTI drones, so I mean, like, this is turnabout's fair play, man. That, that's the point I want to bring out also. They're selling very, very cheap autonomous EV China make cars to all around the world right now. $4,000 uh, fully yep. EV cars. Wow, yep, yep. nice. So the next so never, not, nothing comes cheap, not, nothing comes free. Well, the the drones are even much cheaper. The DJI drones are, you know, just a yeah. few hundred bucks. So the next one is from PT Yoder, just tweeted it out, and it's from Market Watch. It says UC San Diego student, uh, my alma mater, uh, allegedly tapped into phones to steal crypto and tried to blackmail one victim with naked photos. Richard Yuan Lee 
21 year old took over at least 40 people's cell phones from his dorm room prosecutors say the 21 year old student at uc san diego allegedly commandeered the cell phones accounts of at least 40 people to plunder their cryptocurrency wallets richard yuan lee of hercules california is accused of operating what is called a sim swap scam from his dorm room at argo hall a, a sim card uh, is the chip inside the phone that connects the phone with the number in the account they say lee conspired with a cell phone company employee to have unsuspecting victims sims and cell phone accounts transferred to one contained in a stolen iphone he possessed careful yeah this is this is this is this is that multi-factor authentication you know if you have your bank your bank accounts etc linked to your phone so that you get a code they're explore and we talked about this before tyler there's all these services for sms for businesses you sign up for and it costs like 15 bucks and you just have to sign an affidavit that you own the account and all of a sudden your 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 account's owned so I say this with dead seriousness, audience. Your your clubhouse account is only protected by your phone number and a six-digit code. The Lee consp- oh yeah Lee had gained access to the victims' accounts. Prior uh, prosecutors say and other unnamed conspirators would use the phone's two-factor authentication credentials to reset passwords and gain access to the victim's email, bank accounts, and cryptocurrency wallets. In at least one case, prosecutors say Lee stole a significant amount of New Orleans doctor's cryptocurrency and then tried to blackmail him into handing over an additional $640,000 worth of Bitcoin by threatening to share nude photos taken from the doctor's email with people he knew. Federal prosecutors in Louisiana say that in total, Lee activated at least 40 numbers on his iPhone. Uh, Lee's lawyer, Bruce Ashley, said his client was a bright and very earnest young man who had a good academic record, but declined to comment on the allegations against him. Well, that's singing the bright 50? side. Yeah. Uh, 50 decline of comments now? Yeah. L- Lee was initially charged in the scam, but... Uh, back in 2020, but the case was recently expanded as prosecutors determined that he had allegedly scammed far more victims than initially thought. In February, prosecutors charged cell phone company employee Stephen Daniel DeFiori, 36, of Brandon, Florida, for allegedly transferring control of victim accounts to Lee in exchange for $500 a day. The cell phone company wasn't identified. Next one up, thank you for that one, P.T. Yoder, is from Todd McLeese, and this is awesome, um, that GPT-4 will have 100 trillion parameters, 500x the size of GPT-3. Wow. Holy smokies. Uh, GPT-3, as most geeks know, is OpenAI's super impressive language generator that where you can ask gpt3 it does all kinds of genius things but um essentially you can say hey gpt3 tell me a children's story about you know purple reindeer you know uh, and the origins of santa claus and it will create a very convincing story that sounds smarter than most people you'll engage with on facebook and GPT-4, uh, GPT-3 is already super impressive. It already fools people into thinking it's human. And now the headline is that GPT-4 is now being trained 
on 500 times, 500x the size of data of GPT-3, which means it will almost certainly um, be past the Turing test and, and be smarter than um, the majority of people you know. Yeah. Uh, it's not 500 times the data. It's 500 it internally have fi has 500 times the number of parameters. Parameters, so yes. It can make deep, yeah, deeper insights into things. So that's going to be that's going to be pretty fascinating. I think GPT three already gobbled up most of the freely available text data on the internet. Yeah, I was, about, I was sure. thinking the same. I was like, there isn't a whole lot more data to get. Yeah. Well, it was text. I mean, you can you, you can. I mean, the biggest firehose of data I can think of would be uh, YouTube, of course, and Google. I'm yeah. sure are training stuff on that for but, sure. Um, but yeah, well, and, until they can figure out how to harness uh, all of the boom of social audio rooms that are likely to happen. The the next one uh, from Engini in the audience sent, found a tweet by um, Peter Zehan, who I'm endlessly uh, affectionate of. And Peter Zehan, so it's a it's a retweet of Peter Zehan. And he, Peter says on his Twitter account uh, a few hours ago. Evergrande's collapse has begun. He's talking about uh, one of China's biggest companies and certainly their biggest uh, real estate property developer. And the firm just entered te uh, technical default. Point of comparison. Uh, by itself, Evergrande is likely to default on more debt and value than the entirety of all assets that imploded during the entirety of the U.S. subprime crisis. And so Barron's has an article, China's plan for troubled developer Evergrande, uh, a controlled detonation. <laughs> but an, apt, an apt metaphor because it's a property developer. 300 billion in outstanding debt that they have to figure out how to do in a controlled detonation implosion of debt. 300 billion, uh, rather considerable. So he says, for another point of reference, Chinese GDP has expanded by roughly a factor of five since 2020. But debt is up by a factor of 30. Evergrande is... Tyler, does, I'm sorry, Tyler, does the article mention any U.S. banks tied to that debt? No. I'll tweet it. I just tweeted it out right now. So you can read the Barron's article and see if it does. It says, so the, the Chinese GDP is up 5x since in the past 20 years, but, but the debt is up 30x. And Evergrande is a corporate manifestation of that debt explosion. And, and Peter, who've been following this very closely for many, many years, he's written three books on the subject, which are all wildly popular. He's been predicting that China is, itself will not exist in 10 years. And now he's saying, I've, he's been saying in his books, he's been predicting this for over a decade. And he says, yeah, here, well, here, here, here it comes. Everything I've been writing these books about, I've been predicting in multiple best-selling books for over a decade. And here it comes. Yeah, it's the mob. The mob is now finally being called out in China. That's what this is. Peter's been on the record as he's 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 a very high paid public speaker, and he speaks very regularly at many events. And he has said there are countless reasons why China will not exist in ten years. He says I can give you twenty it's, reasons why China will not exist in ten years. It's the elephant that's been tied up with a tiny rope that's about to just destroy that rope, man. Can can we define the sentence "will not exist"? It, econ it will economically yeah. collapse, it, like Venezuela, like uh, uh, Lebanon. 
So the next one is from uh, Sarah on stage here. Uh, more from Sweden. Did we cover this yet? And essentially, I think, Sarah, what you wanted to cover was that Techstars, the um, incubator accelerator program uh, based out of Boulder by uh, David Cohen and, and Brad Feld, is opening in Paris and in Stockholm. Yeah. Exactly. Two new accelerator programs in Paris and Stockholm for Techstars. So I will retweet that out for those who want to read all about that, especially people from Paris or Stockholm. And then Cami sends in one that Stanford releases new benchmarks for embodied AI, reproducing real-world challenges encountered by robots and other agents. From Psychology Today. Cami, you want to comment on that one? I, I imagine it's the... Uh, um it's pretty late she i think she said she's on the pacific time zone yeah. so 20 so it says ai's ai is speeding innovation in both physical and simulation models for robotics and embodied cognition a new study by stanford university researchers introduces behavior a benchmark for embodied ai that contains a hundred everyday household activities in virtual interactive and ecological environments stanford university study authors include a whole bunch of AI award winners. Um, I've been, it's, this one's better off tweeted out. So I just tweeted that one out. It gets very deep very quickly. The next one's from Alexandra. Yeah. Oh, before you move oh, on. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Cammie. Uh, I was away from my microphone. Sure. Um, what's really interesting about this is it's, for me, it is the first time that I've seen a comprehensive set of benchmarks on um, that, pretty much are made on a hundred um, really common type of activities that you'd find in the household. So this is really relevant in that it's really moving us along in terms of accelerating robotics and um, virtual assistance as well. So uh, Stanford's really leading the way in many areas of artificial intelligence and um, embodied AI having this is just one set of um, one step forward um, in raising the standard, if not setting the standard. So this is really helpful for anyone who's into automation. Cool. Thank you for that. I, I just sent it to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. I retweeted um, Cami's tweet. <clears throat> and now I'm retweeting Alexandra's tweet from The Verge about a comprehensive breakdown of the Epic versus Apple ruling. Apple's not a monopolist, but it's still stifled competition, essentially. And then that's one of the big stories of the of the year, really. <clears throat> the next one's from BB from Nikkei Japan, that the tech industry braces for skyrocketing rare earth prices, surging demand, and US-China tensions make life tough for hardware makers. And the next one's from Renjant, the from TechCrunch, that Twitter reopens its account verification process. After another pause, Twitter has again restarted its account verification process, the company said on Monday evening. Uh, and indeed, they need to really get that shit figured out. As I mentioned to uh, the Twitter founders when they were only 20 people over lunch, so when they we, we were... They were working to recruit me inside that I thought, man, you're going to need to verify everybody or this is going to turn into a shit show. And boy, I had no idea. 
how right I was about that one. But um, the, the, the interesting thing now isn't that the news isn't um, when Twitter turns on and turns off verification. It's when the news media outlets are going to stop reporting that Twitter, they, when they get bored of reporting that they've switched <laughs> it on or off. Because it's happening so often now. Yeah. Well, people get really frustrated. A lot of people want to be verified. But I pray to God they can verify and every actual human in this, you know, if we could do identity verification for Twitter, that would solve a whole lot of problems. Um, and just social media in general, I'm, I'm hugely in favor of at least the platforms having recourse into knowing and everyone knowing that everyone is known on the platform. So you couldn't have, um, you know, a lot. It would remove a lot of bad behaviors, I think. So, but, uh, you know, remember recently there's a flawed, uh, there's a fake news from Litecoin. Yes. Litecoin is a verified account, but Litecoin actually tweeted on its own Twitter account about yes. the flaw. Yeah. That, that's not good behavior. Right. Well, the, if they had identity verification on the, it was called Global Newswire, which was a platform where it's similar to Twitter. It's a, it's a platform where you can do press releases and somebody made a fake account. And if they had identity verification, that never would have happened. I, I still think Twitter is going to become the super app that we keep referring to. You know, they keep paving and making inroads towards that. And if they nail the identity, if they manage the, uh, you know, the DeFi and then somehow crack a way to, um, you know, protect you from. Uh, content you may or may not want to see, um, you know, like they're all working on. I think they're going to be that super app. For anybody that's interested, they have a, a really good Discord group that I'm, I'm part of and, and chatting with the developers that are working on the Blue Sky thing. If you can remember when it came out a month and a half, two months ago, something like that, where the Twitter was working on a decentralized sort of um, social media chain. Um, that that's an open Discord, so you can just look for Blue Sky Community. It's a little bit tech heavy, but if you're into that at all, it's it's really really good. I mean, my question to you, Tyler, would be, um, like, would you personally be comfortable if Twitter became the de facto identity verification service? I mean, it, it kind of sort of is right now, but I mean, if they expanded it further and it just became the automatic verification sort of thing for anybody, no, um, I I would thing. want an independent third party. Uh, I, I Stripe, I would be fine with Twitter. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want it. Whoever becomes that service, I wouldn't want it tied to uh, another business, so to speak, like yeah. an ad network. I have another take on that. I would like to prefer to see the World Bank or something that a really global entity handling that one. So, well, Florin, that's interesting because you say um, one thing. Twitter could do that with Square, though, for finance. So you talk yeah. about fintech yeah. and verification in Twitter. Wow, that's that's deep because that can make a lot of sense. Nope, there's left pocket to right pocket. Not reliable. But that's what I've been talking about, and that like you know, they're gonna put they're gonna bring Trump back onto Twitter, and. And, and, and there's going to be like this battle over his voice. Right. And, and Tyler says it's the freedom, freedom, uh, not freedom of speech, but freedom of reach. Right. Or, or right to reach. And you're going to pay for reach and you're going to pay to deny reach. And that's going to be the other mechanism. You know, it's going to be like a, the upvote downvote system on Reddit. So next... or, or like dig. 
Yeah. Next article here. U.S. finds former uh, oh, the, the U.S. Department of Justice has fined three former NSA employees um, who worked as hackers for hire for the United Arab Emirates cybersecurity company. Mark Bayer, uh, Ryan Adams and Daniel Garrick. Uh, broke U.S. export control laws that require companies and individuals to obtain a special license from the State Department's director, uh, Directorate of Defense Trade Controls before providing defense-related services to a foreign government. According to court documents, the three suspects helped the United Arab Emirates company develop and successfully deploy at least two hacking tools. The three entered into a first-of-its-kind deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice today, agreeing to pay $750,000, $600,000, and $335,000, respectively, over a three-year term in order to avoid jail times for their actions. The three worked for Dark Matters Project Raven. Oh, shit. While the court documents are heavily redacted, um, their actions being first exposed by a whistleblower and documented in multi-part Reuters investigation in 2019, per the Reuters report, <clears throat> the three worked as contractors for the UAE-based Dark Matter between 2016 and 2019. Uh, I got to pause for one second. Okay, sorry. The uh, DOJ targets hackers for, yeah. Wild. So uh, it says the Department of Justice targets hacker for higher scene. Besides today's fines, the DOJ agreement also includes the following. So I'm just tweeting that one out now for those who want to read that one. And then the next one is a very good news uh, for uh, Stockholm and my friends Alan and Nami from Truecaller, Swedish caller identification service, Truecaller. Uh, seeks to raise over $100 million in an IPO. Truecaller, which operates as an uh, ep eponymous caller identification service, said on Wednesday it's looking to raise $116 million in an IPO on NASDAQ. The 12-year-old Stockholm firm uh, aiming for a valuation of $3 billion in the IPO. And I could not be happier for Alan. What do they do? It's, it's a, it's, they focused on India. And it's basically when you install Truecaller, it's the world's largest database of everybody's cell phone numbers, essentially. <clears throat> and the, what they've, how they've productized that is when somebody calls you, you know who's calling you because it's everybody opts into uh, allowing access to their contacts. So they have everybody's contacts. So they know everybody's cell phone number. So if an unknown number calls you, you already know who it'll be, even though you shouldn't, essentially. Right, yeah. We, yeah, it's, it's baked into the, the UK sort of landline system. So like caller ID, you can opt out or opt in. So the, um, the, the, just, the main way they productize it is in India, uh, spam phone calls is a huge problem in India. And so this stops them from happening. So once you install Truecaller, you stop getting, you know, countless spam phone calls, which is a, like, as I mentioned, you, it's hard to emphasize how big of a problem that is. 
still here. I mean, you know, mo- a lot of us probably have cell phones that have been with us 20 plus years and it's, you know, useless phone calls about your car warranty being up or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I've been uh, friendly with them Tyler. since they were a tiny company. Uh, Rengent as well as friendly with the founders. Yeah. Yeah. Tyler. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's not in the case of India, it's not just the caller identification. They have been focusing a lot on women security. Like that they, they are the ones who are getting most number of these kind of calls from unknown people. And um, I mean, it's, it's a fact that uh, back, way back in India, you know, when you take a cell phone number, they they literally write it down who has taken it and then, then they sell this data to i don't know whoever it is for like 100 bucks and stuff like that so phone numbers get leaked uh, the moment you purchase the sim itself so <clears throat> there is very very likely that you get all these uh, calls and messages from unknown people so they have been focusing a lot on that like for the past couple of years plus they also give a pretty interesting B2B section these days that if you get a call from, let's say, Uber Eats or any kind of delivery services or something, they get some kind of a priority because it can be sometimes that you're going to block a lot of these uh, calls from these kind of companies. But uh, companies like delivery and uh, some kind of important services, they give high priority. So they give some kind of a tick mark just like for Twitter and you get you don't get blocked because some services are important for you. And if a lot of people have blocked that services, you probably are not going to get that call. So they 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 twisted the B2B angle also pretty well. And I think they have a huge ad network also these days. They make a lot of money with the ad network also. And I don't know what is their angle on FinTech these days. Uh, it was launched a few years ago, like, uh, connecting to the UPI that you can transfer money and stuff like that. I don't know what is the angle now. Uh, But the question to you, Tyler, is that two to three billion, I think it was three billion valuation. Isn't it that pretty less being a market, targeting a market in India and being true color? Yeah, but they they haven't productized it in all the ways that they can. They could do, uh, they could become a super app because they have a truly valuable asset, which is no having everybody, this huge database, they could do all kinds of amazing things with it. They could get into ver- identity verification. They could get into all kinds of interesting things with that data set that they haven't. So, um, but now once they IPO, they can and, you know, whatever. So um, I'm just incredibly uh, happy for... Um, Alan and Nami and Kim and all of my friends there who I've known since the start, since they were a tiny little startup. So it's, it's super awesome. So, and they have been rejected multiple times by the European investors. That's also funny. Yeah, they have Sequoia. They have Atomico. They have the smartest investors. So they, they got no problems. So the next one is from Newsweek that the Center for Disease Control finds over... 83% of Americans had COVID antibodies before Delta. The study examined about 1.5 million blood donation specimens for antibodies between July 2020 and May 2021. 83% already had antibodies? Seems seems high, but um, why is Delta still kicking so much ass in America at the moment? Which is not relevant anymore because it's Delta. 
I think the thing that we 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 have to understand is that this is a we're going into fields of viruses all the time, you know. Like so, we are building up uh, slow and you know antibodies against it. Like every time you go out in public, you are getting exposed to some level of COVID. It's just whether or not you you get infected by it to where your body is overrun. So this does make sense. And again, I'm not a doctor, but I do understand, you know, the immunological process and, you know, do know that this is a gray thing. You know, it's not like you get out in public and you catch one COVID bug and you're like toast, you know, you're constantly getting it. It's, you know, when I mentioned when we went to Vegas and, you know, we were in like a COVID pit, when I came back, I was dead tired. I think that was my body responding to it because I'm vaccinated. Hmm. Okay, so next one up is from Evan from Fast Company about a new type of porous pavement that will help prevent flooding by uh, absorbing the rain. When cities are covered in pavement, they're more easily they more easily flood because stormwater can't get into the ground. This alternative has tiny holes to let the water in. And then Poppy sends in one from the New York Times that Al-Qaeda could rebuild in Afghanistan in a year or two, U.S. officials say. The new timeline is not a radical shift from previous assessments, but reflects the reality that the Taliban has a limited ability to control the borders. True that. And then uh, SpaceX inspiration for to become the first all civilian mission to orbit spacex plans to launch their first all civilian mission to orbit named inspiration Four this week check back for live updates and katarina sends in ones about how cows uh, are being potty trained in an experiment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions where the calves were taught to use the barn's toilet area with rewards and mild punishment significantly limiting ammonia release. Why didn't we think of this before? The next one from Sharok from The Guardian says, China's cultural crackdown, few areas untouched as Xi reshapes society. Vast range of new regulations on society prompt fears of a return to tight control of pre-reform days. And the next one from Evan about soon you'll be able to buy bubble tea from a robot and pay with your face in a, in a kiosk, which sounds like a joke, but it could be a threat to the likes of Starbucks and whatnot. If we're replacing baristas with robots in little kiosks and you pay with your face as you can in this case. And I just tweeted that one. There already robot barista for gourmet coffee. Yep. In Singapore and Japan, I think in many parts of the yeah. world too. Oh man, I just saw a glimpse of the future because of that, Tyler. You know, there's just going to be like a constant stream of almost like vending machine like robots yep. that are just bring you Starbucks or whatever you want. Ice cream, hamburgers. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's that's what life is going to be like. Restaurant kiosks. Yes. So the next one is oh, we talked about Canva raised 200 million at a 40 billion valuation uh the next one from evan uh reuters headline reads russia publishes plan to tax foreign tech promote homegrown rivals gee i wonder if russia's been paying attention to india here as i've said from the 
from the moment India started doing this type of stuff, I said, watch, Russia's going to do the exact same thing. Here's the headline from Reuters. Three months later, Russia publishes plan to tax foreign tax promotes homegrown rivals. The Russian government published a plan on Tuesday to impose new taxes on foreign-owned digital services by November, part of a package of proposals to promote homegrown rivals. Uh, supporting its domestic tech sector. Oh, uh, part of a package of proposals Moscow says are aimed at supporting its domestic tech sector. The proposed taxes on foreign tech firms has been presented as part of an internal effort to agree new global tax rules to better capture revenues generated by big tech firms known for shifting profits to low tax jurisdictions. Deputy Finance Minister said earlier this year, that large foreign digital companies providing services in Russia should be subject to profit taxes and that Moscow was involved in discussions uh, on the like. But in Russia's case, the move also comes amid a wider effort to strengthen control of the Internet and promote domestic alternatives to services offered by Silicon Valley. Told you, told you, I told you. Did they tell you? I told you. How many times did I tell you? I told you about 10 times this was going to happen. Jesus. By the way, I'm telling you now, after Russia does this, everyone's going to do it. Everyone who can do it is going to do it. There's no reason they wouldn't do it. They have a WhatsApp, folks. They have a WhatsApp where all the governments just share their tricks and tips with each other. (laughs) They're in a WhatsApp group together. (laughs) Mark my words. As soon as Russia gets done with this, Indonesia, everybody, Korea. Oh, shit. Oh, Oh, we can kick out the big American tech giants and replace them with our own companies that we can tax and control and get all the data and everything else. What's the downside? There isn't any. It's all upside. Tons and tons and tons of upside. More jobs, more taxes, more control, zero downside. Why wouldn't they do it? There's no reason not to do it. Countries big enough for a big market. All going to do it. Yes. Russia. So I love an idea, the idea that there's a mailing list of like tips and tricks for your autocracy. Yes. He's top seven this week. The next one is from RCC from Forbes, a company called IonQ delivers a new architecture and, gla- and glass quantum computer chip a year earlier than expected. Good times. Bring on the quantum computing. Katarina sends in this one that researchers shine new light on molecular mechanisms in brain diseases. Rutgers researchers have discovered some of the first molecular insights into how toxic proteins are regulated in neurodegenerative diseases. And she says there are many clinical fasting studies from Russia that have shown many beneficial effects of fasting for many years. I hope that they will get more attention now. So apparently fasting is one of the keys to reducing these protein expressions. And the next one is from, oh, the three U.S. intelligence operatives that helped the UAE. We covered that. So we will pause there. I still have, Jesus, a whole lot of more tweets to go through, but I have another engagement I have to run to. So we got to pause and we will meet again in five and a half hours for another Tech News Around the World. Thank, Thank you for joining. You. Have a wonderful care, Wednesday, Tyler. everybody. See you okay. later. Be safe. See you. Don't dream of sushi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>